And I thought, well, I've been missing surfing for a while. I keep hearing about this place in Costa Rica called Santa Teresa. I'm going to go down there. So I came down and ended up staying for like six months. And that's the voice of the carnivore MD, Paul Saladino. And I'm Chris Wybin. This is Won't Back Down, presented by BioAccelerator. So Dr. Saladino, you can find him on Instagram at carnivoremd. He is also a best-selling author. Uh, the name of the book is The Carnivore Code. And he is the host of the Fundamental Health Podcast. So I came across Dr. Paul Saladino on Instagram because I was, I was watching George St. Pierre transform his body and he was crediting uh, Dr. Saladino and this new diet called the carnivore diet. And so I followed his process and after 30 days of GSP doing this diet, he looked amazing. He put up pictures. He said he felt amazing. And so I was intrigued. And when I started looking into the diet, it was against everything that I've ever learned about nutrition vegetables aren't good. Red fatty meat is good. And you want to have as much as possible every day, um, including all the organ meat. And I was like, you know what? For 30 days, let me give this thing a shot because I'm open-minded. I, I want to see what works best for me. Um, he was putting out his numbers on like inflammatory numbers based on his blood work and everything was going down. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to give this thing a shot. After 30 days of doing it, I felt the best I ever felt in my life. Um, it wasn't that hard. I was never like a big steak guy, um, but I was eating at least two ribeyes a day, about two pounds to two and a half pounds of red fatty meat and also eggs and tons of fruit. And I, and I felt amazing. It wasn't hard for me to do it. I was super excited about each meal, which was shocking to me. Um, and I had plenty of energy. I felt great as far as like clarity of the mind and physically just with my recovery, uh, with inflammation in the body, I never felt better. And so since then, I think what I'm going to be doing and what I have been doing is I'm on the carnivore diet as much as I possibly can, just like any other diet, but I'm having cheap meals here and there. You know, you're not supposed to drink alcohol when you're on it. So every once in a while, I started drinking alcohol. Um, every once in a while, you know, if I wanted a, a dish of pasta, I'm, I'm going to do it, but I think I'm always going to go back to my default being the carnivore diet, aka um, the animal-based diet, which is I could have any type of food that comes from an animal and as much fruit as I want. Because when I am strict on that diet, I really have never felt better in my life. And so as I did more research on this and, I, and as I spoke to Dr. Saladino, there was tons of people who have done this diet and realized that their autoimmune disease, you know, went away. And people who have been dealing with certain things, you know, in their body and they never really felt great, all of a sudden they're feeling the best they've ever felt in their life. So I thought it was really a good idea to have him come on my podcast so I could so other people could hear his story, other people could do some research and see if this is something that I think they should at least try um, to see if it's going to help you. Coming up on today's show, we'll get into all that. And Dr. Saladino and I are going to talk about the case for an animal-based diet, a trip to Africa that changed his life, why McDonald's isn't that bad for you, and testicles. All that good stuff is coming up in a moment. But before we begin, I want to tell you about Won't Back Down's presenting sponsor, BioAccelerator. 
BioAccelerator is the world leader in stem cell therapy and regenerative medical research. Through the use of their powerful golden stem cells, they help patients heal from joint and orthopedic injuries, autoimmune disorders, spine and disc damage, and neurological trauma. Unfortunately, I had to reschedule my trip to BioAccelerator because I had this second surgery. So it got postponed to mid-September, but I'm super excited to get down there and get the treatments. I hear nothing but amazing things about the staff and people feeling better than they've ever felt afterwards. And so I'm super excited about it. And I can't wait to tell you guys about my experience. All right, here's my conversation with the carnivore doctor himself, Dr. Paul Saladino. So about three years ago, I remember listening to a Rogan podcast, I think it was 2018-ish, uh, and it was Jordan, Jordan Peterson was on there, and he was talking about him and his daughter, they were on this carnivore diet, basically, I think he was eating, uh, I think he was eating greens and meat, that was it, um, and then Rogan started talking about doing the carnivore diet, but I remember as an athlete, I was training for fights, and I remember being intrigued, I'm always very open-minded. Um, I'm like, that makes sense. But then I would speak to my nutritionist, you know, and they were like, ah, you know, that's ridiculous. You need a well-balanced meal. You need your vegetables, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going with you. Um, and then I remember maybe around that time was when game changers came out, the whole, the vegan thing on Netflix and everybody started becoming a vegan. I tried it. I did it for like two months maybe. And, um, which I, I didn't, I, I can't say I felt bad on it. I didn't feel amazing. I would say I felt good but I didn't enjoy it at all. I hated, I hated it. I didn't, I didn't like eating vegetables. It was like, I was forcing myself to eat this way. Um, so eventually that, that fell apart. Um, and then the carnivore, and then I, then I, what ended up happening, I saw George St. Pierre doing this diet recently. And, um, and it kind of brought back the memories of watching Jordan Peterson on Rogan show. And so George St. Pierre was, he kept posting, he kept uh, tagging you on carnivore MD on Instagram and then talking about this carnivore diet that he's trying for 30 days. <clears throat> and then at the end of it, he showed a picture of what he looked like at the end of the 30 days. I'm like, oh. I mean, I mean, GSP has been retired for a while. He's always been in you know pretty good shape, but I, I really felt like he probably looked the best he's ever looked. And he said, he said he felt the best he's ever looked. And I seen, I, I, I heard the podcast when you guys spoke with each other and I was like, man, I was like, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. Why not? And I'm injured. I just got, I broke my leg in half time to try something different. Um, the uh, and I heard you on Rogan as well, so I, I was I heard the philosophy on it and the ancestral um, whole thing that I'll have you go into, um, and it made sense. So I gave it a shot, and I honestly probably never felt better in my life for thirty days. Um, I was never a big meat eater. It wasn't like I always loved steak. I kind of grew up, you know, we didn't have the best steak. It was would always like chew up and turn into little balls in my mouth. You know, it was probably always, always overcooked. So I was never into, in, into steak. Um, but then I did this diet, basically, make a long story short, and I felt great. It was basically ribeyes, lunch and dinner, eggs in the morning, um, fruit throughout the whole day, um, your supplements to eat like the organ meat, uh, the heart and soil supplement to get that in because I'm not a, I, I have a hard time thinking I'm going to be eating uh, like, you know, liver and heart and everything. So uh, I felt amazing doing it. And, and I plan on sticking with this diet. Um, you know, for the rest of my life and kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have cheat meals. I'm going to drink alcohol. I'm going to, you know, get back on it. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll mess up, but I think I'm going to always kind of settle back into this carnivore diet just because of the way I felt. Um, I mean, I have tons of questions, but first, can we go into why, how did you get into this diet one and why does it make sense and who does it make sense for? 
Yeah, great questions. So it's funny, Chris, my introduction to the diet was probably that same Rogan podcast that you heard. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The power of Rogan, man. I know, man. (laughs) Shout out to Joe Rogan. Yeah. So I was in my car driving. I was in Seattle at the time doing my residency at the University of Washington. I'm a traditionally trained medical doctor. And I was driving to the coast to go surfing on a rare weekend off. And while I was driving to the coast, I'm sure it was a rainy, cold day. I had Rogan's podcast on. I was kind of interested in Jordan Peterson's overall philosophy. And at the end of one of these podcasts, he talks about his autoimmune disease and how much better it got when he cut out a lot of different foods from his diet. And he did talk about eating meat and greens, but then just going to straight meat. And it was that transition where he just ate meat, where his sleep apnea got better. His, I think he had joint pain, that whole family, the Peterson family, his daughter, Michaela, was also on Rogan, has talked about this, had really juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, an autoimmune condition of pretty severe joint breakdown. These autoimmune conditions where the yeah, immune she system- had, uh, Sorry to interrupt. She had a uh, her ankle replaced and I think her something, another joint replaced at 15 because of the yeah. arthritic autoimmune disease. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible how bad her autoimmune disease was. Yeah. And so he, Jordan learned about it from his daughter, Michaela, but Jordan was talking about how much it improved his sleep apnea and his autoimmune symptoms. And I was just, you know, being a doctor at the time and being at the end of my training and residency and thinking that I was going to finish residency and build a practice. I'd always been interested in understanding the root cause of an illness. You know, most, so many of my colleagues are so smart and so well-intentioned, but we just get, we don't get taught to ask these questions in medical school. We're never taught to say what is causing this person's eczema, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, osteoarthritis, what is causing this autoimmune disease, Sjogren's, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, whatever, inflammatory bowel disease. We are really, really good at saying, I know what that is, that's ulcerative colitis, or that's Crohn's disease, and I have the drug for that. Now, that's great if someone can't change their lifestyle or isn't willing to make lifestyle changes with diet or other things, but I think the majority of people, if we offered them a clear path toward resolution of their autoimmune illness. And the spectrum of autoimmune illness is very, very big. If we offered them a clear path that didn't involve drugs, I think many of them would be willing to try that because a lot of these drugs have bad side effects, right? I mean, you can, you can take a, a biologic drug uh, for your rheumatoid arthritis, but that increases your risk of cancer and severe pneumonia because it, it really uh, dampens your immune system response. So I was always interested and I knew that I didn't want to practice entirely based on pharmaceuticals. I wanted to really understand the root cause of illness. I'd always been fascinated by by food and the effect on our bodies and immune system. And I just could never, I had my own autoimmune illness. I had eczema, which is this itchy bump, these red itchy bumps that happen Mm. on my skin. And some people might think, oh, that's not a big deal. But for me, it got pretty serious. When I was in medical school, uh, I had multiple infections. I was learning jujitsu at the time at the University of Arizona. And I had multiple infections on my knees. You know how it is when you're on the mats with your wrestling, like you can't have impetigo. You can't have eczema because it's going to get infected. And so it was pretty severe. And I had eczema flares that were so severe that my whole body was covered in eczema at times. And I was thinking, man, I'm eating a good diet at this point. So I'm in the car, listening to the podcast with Jordan. I'm thinking, I still have eczema. I have an autoimmune illness. I'm eating a good diet, quote unquote. I'm eating like a paleo diet, which is meat, vegetables, fruit, nuts, and seeds, and you know, leafy greens, whatever. But, But I'm still having eczema. So maybe I'll give this a try. And I love these dietary interventions. I was a raw vegan for seven months, 
you know, 14 years ago. So I've explored everything that I could think of. And I wanted to see like you, I wanted to experiment and see how does my body feel? I was never a professional athlete, but for my adult life, I like to be active. I was a distance runner. And then I wanted to do jujitsu and medical school and residency. And then I was mountain biking, whatever I wanted to do. So I wanted to have this vessel work. And so I started a carnivore diet. I cut out all the plants from my diet and, and lo and behold, you know, fast forward a little bit, the eczema gets better. Psychologically, I felt better. I never really thought that I had depression or anxiety, but psychologically, I just felt more emotionally stable and happier. And I was like, what is going on here? Maybe this is placebo, but there's something to it. So I got really interested in this whole idea of carnivore and animal-based diets. We can talk about the nuances between the two of those. Mm -hmm. Um, But I got really interested in this because the mainstream media will tell us that meat is bad for us and, and here, and vegetables are good for us. And here I was doing the complete opposite like you and feeling better than I ever had in my whole life. Right. Crazy. Than I ever had. I mean, I'm 44, Chris, I went to medical school late and here I was in my late thirties feeling better than I ever have in my whole life thinking I'm doing the opposite of what everybody's told. There's a study that just came out. Um, CNN just published this paper. Maybe your audience saw it. Eating a hot dog is associated with 36 minutes off of your life. This is the type of incredibly misleading, you know, information that we're told. And so people think they hear it over and over and over. And it's like, if the lie gets repeated over and over, maybe people will begin to believe it. And so I just, I knew there was something wrong with this. I knew meat was good for humans. I knew Joey Chestnut's in trouble based on that. Like these guys... (laughs) Those guys are screwed based on that study. I know, right? But of course, and we can get to this, but that's all epidemiology. That's observational evidence. That's not actually a real, there's no interventional study being done there. It's observational evidence and that's inherently flawed. It can be really misleading and we can talk about why. So I did a carnivore diet. I cut out all the plants from my diet, all the fruit. I, I only ate meat and organs and fat for a year and a half and I felt pretty good. Now, long term, with that type of a diet, I ran into some issues with long-term ketosis. And that was why I sort of modified a little bit and talked about this. I talked about this idea of an animal-based diet. And that's what George was doing. That's what we kind of designed for you. It's an animal-based diet. It's pretty darn similar to carnivore. And you could probably call it a quote-unquote carnivore diet because the majority of your food is meat with some of these organs or organ desiccated organ supplements, like we make it hard in soil. But then you add to that a few of a few carbohydrates. And that I think are the least toxic sources of carbohydrates. And all this will make more sense in a moment. Mm-hmm. And then you get, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get carbohydrates. So you, you don't really go into ketosis long-term because that has a lot of negative effects for humans. I learned, many people learn for you as an athlete, for George, I didn't want him to be in ketosis all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'll just mention briefly that though ketosis is beneficial for some people in the short term and ketone bodies called acetoacetate or beta-hydroxybutyrate have been associated with beneficial effects. Long-term ketosis seems to inevitably lead to electrolyte problems for a lot of people. For me, it led to a lot of muscle cramping, heart palpitations, sleep disturbances. Not a good thing if you're an athlete, not a good thing if you're a mom or a dad or anybody who wants to perform. And I hear this all the time from people with my work. I get a lot of people who say, hey, Paul, I know you did jujitsu. Like I'm doing a carnivore diet and my endurance seems to be down on the carnivore diet. I feel good, but my endurance is down. And I say, yeah, add in some fruit, add in some honey, add in some of these least toxic carbohydrates. We'll unpack all this in a moment. And immediately, boom, they still feel great, but their endurance gets way better. And so that's, that's the thing that I eventually discovered and kind of led to these, uh, these, uh, this idea 
of a carnivore diet and an animal-based diet. And those two being very similar with that one difference. And all of this is asking the question, what is a species appropriate diet for humans? Because you get this, and I'm sure everybody that listens to your podcast asks this question. Everybody wants to kick ass, whether they're wrestlers or MMA guys or you know, women who want to dance or women who want to, you know, be CrossFitters or, you know, we all, we want a body that works. I'm surfing mm -hmm. a lot here in Costa Rica. I want to be strong and fit and look good and have healthy mood, sleep, libido, everything. Right. Absolutely. And so I believe that, that if we look back at human history and anthropology, we can really see why this way of eating works. Cause it makes a lot of sense when we look back historically, when we kind of, we're never taught paleoanthropology in medical school. But if we, if we were, I think we would understand this concept a little bit better. But I really believe that as homo sapiens, as humans, there is a species appropriate diet for us. This occurs in other animals as well. We know that like, if you have a lion in a zoo, I'm not a big fan of lions and zoos, but if you have a lion in the zoo, you know that there's a species appropriate diet for that lion in the zoo. But yeah. it's so funny that as humans, we're like the only species on the planet that doesn't quite know what we're supposed to eat, right? And we're so crazy. You know, so we don't crazy. Even know. We're the like, smartest ones and we don't know what we're supposed to eat. We don't know what we're supposed you to know? eat. So for me, it was interesting. I kind of went down multiple paths and we can talk about all of them. There's, you can look at the medical literature, you know, looking at interventional studies with red meat, you know, uh, that's showing that it's beneficial. But the path that I want to go down a little bit here, which will kind of make answer your question as to why this makes sense is the, the historical path, yeah. the anthropology path. And this was something that George was interested in too. And I think one of the reasons that he found me and reached out because George had visited the Maasai in Africa. They live in Tanzania and other areas of Northern Africa. And I visited the Maasai this past year. And I also visited the Hadza. Now the Hadza are a really interesting group of people. They're some of the last remaining hunter gatherers left on the planet. And by hunter gatherer, I mean like legitimate hunter gatherer, Chris. Like you go to visit these people, there's only a few hundred of them living like this in the world. You, you literally have to go in a four by four through back rows. There's not even really a road. You get to their camp. You're not even sure which camp they're going to be at because they're migratory and they move around. Our guides had to go in on a bicycle before we got there to figure out where they were. And you walk into their camp and it's like you just went in the time machine, man. It's like 50,000 years ago. They're wow. super friendly. They come out to greet you. They recognize the guides, but they're literally wearing animal skins for shirts. And they're either barefoot or sandals. They have bows that they've made out of wood with arrows they make out of wood. They have no electricity. They live in huts they make out of thatched roofs, like these, these uh, sort of uh, semi-ovular huts. And that's it. And the huts, then, then when they leave, the huts get broken down. And they, they, have, they live outside. They're basically like bear grills on steroids. They're, they're the real deal. These are legitimate hunter-gatherers. They live under rocks. They, they, they live in the bush in Africa. That's all they do. They don't own anything. Now, now when they see you come there, do they, are they intrigued about where you come from and wanting to visit where you're from and be more like you? Because now you're in the future. You're more technologically advanced. you got the ATVs you're bringing in there. Is that something that they're interested in or they're just happy the way they are? This is such a cool, cool question. They're pretty happy the way they are, Chris, because we ask them, we say, well, we ask them a lot of questions, but one of the questions we ask them is, do you want to live like these other people? Because they see the Maasai. The Maasai used to be hunter-gatherers. We all used to be hunter-gatherers. There's other people that are called the Datoga and the Maasai. 
And the Datoga and the Maasai have now become pastoralists, which mean they, they live in the African bush, but they have these like mud huts that they build and they keep cattle and goats and they grow corn, right? So they're growing crops. They're not hunter gatherers anymore. They're, they're actually pastoralists and they're in the middle. And they say, no, we don't want to live like them because we like hunting. We like meat. We want to eat meat every day. And we want to be able to go out and hunt. They love their life. They have this like adventurous life and they love this life. And, you know, we had cell phones, like they would look at our cell phones. We were showing them pictures of animals on cell phones. And they're, they're so funny. They like mimic the animals and they make the sounds. And they're like, they saw a picture of a rhinoceros and they were like, oh, that one's dangerous. Or they saw a picture of like a big eland, which is actually their favorite food. And they go crazy. That's like a large, a large impala. It's like a 2000 pound impala, like an impala the size of a cow in Africa. And they go crazy because that's their favorite food. They're like, they want to go hunting and they know it's a phone and they know it's technological, but they don't really want to leave and become civilized, quote unquote. They are, they're some of the happiest people I've ever met, but I got to spend two weeks with them and I went hunting with them multiple days. We went and we made poison for arrows. And when you go hunting with these guys, Chris, we were out there for nine hours hunting. They'd walk all day We'd walk, we had dogs, we would walk like, we probably walked 16 miles in a day hunting. We were hunting baboons and we'd go all the way to the place where the baboons are and they'd walk, walk, walk. And then all of a sudden they all sprint and the dogs run and everything's crazy. And we're just like, what is going on? And then they're, they're finding the baboons, they're yelling. And then they come back with this baboon that they killed. And it's like, oh, this is crazy. And then immediately they put the baboon on a fire, they burn the hair off, they cut it open and they eat the organs. So they eat the organs first. We're kind of back really? to the importance of organs. Yeah. They eat the they liver. feel like it tastes the best or is it because they feel like it's more sacred or the best for them? They, I think that it's all of those things. And they know like they're going to eat the organs so that they, they can just bring the animal with the meat back to camp. Like the organs don't transport well. They appreciate the nutrition from the organs and they just share it among the tribe. So we ate like kidney and liver and heart. They, all cook, that stuff. they cook everything though. They cook everything. They cook it all on the fire. They cook everything and they're sharing it. It's like a really sacred part of the animal. And you, you tell when, like when you get the baboon and they take the liver out, it's sacred. They're holding it with two hands. They're very careful with it. You know, they're like dividing it up. They, they treasure that. And so mm. you can tell the organs are crucial for them. And then they bring it back to camp and they all share in the meat. And this went on day after day. In fact, the next day after we hunted the baboon, we came back and they were roasting its skull and we ate the brains. <laughs> so wow. they eat, they eat everything on this animal. And we asked them, you know, we sit with them by the fire at night and we say, what is your favorite food? And they say, meat, eland, baboon, bush pig, the biggest animals they can get. Meat is their favorite food. What do you dream about? We dream about hunting and meat. What's the best day of your life? The day that I kill the biggest animal and bring it back to the tribe and we all celebrate and we're all full and happy. It's like their whole life revolves around meat. It's very clear that life and death like everything, meat is sacred to them. You'd ask the women, what makes a good, a good husband? And they say, oh, a husband that's a successful hunter that brings meat back to the tribe and shares it with us. So like meat is at the center of their life. And I'm telling the story to kind of point out that I really believe that these guys are a time machine. They're not a, a completely uh, perfect time machine because tourists have been going to visit them and they now smoke marijuana and tobacco we've given them. And given the chance, they will buy alcohol and drink it and get drunk. But and that, that's still not their favorite thing. Their favorite thing is meat. <laughs> favorite thing is meat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their favorite thing is meat, man. They, they want meat. They, they dream about meat. And uh, you can clearly tell within their food 
which foods they like most. Like there's a hierarchy of foods. And I see them, and they're, this, this is repeated over and over in hunter-gatherer tribes, whether you're talking about the Hadza, the Kungstan, and then maybe in Botswana, or um, you know, there's a group in uh, the Amazon called uh, the Yanomoni Warani uh, that are also semi-hunter-gatherers, but there's probably less than a hundred, excuse me, a thousand hunter-gatherer humans left on this planet. But they've been studied over the last few decades as they're disappearing, and you see this trend over and over. Meat is central. There's no vegetarian hunter-gatherer groups, right? They want meat, they want organs. And then the next thing, which is quite interesting, is that they're not like picking leaves to make a salad unless they're starving. Like if they pass by a hive and they see bees, they're gonna stop and eat that honey. Like immediately, they love honey. And if they pass by, you know, a tree with like fruit, they're gonna eat the fruit but they're not gonna go to great lengths to eat leaves off of trees. The women will sometimes go and dig tubers, but it's kind of not, it's their least favorite food. And that's been documented over and over by anthropologists that have studied them. Frank Marlowe is the, the one that's done most of the work with the Hadza. And so you see this in this time machine, like anthropologically, humans have always wanted meat. We've always now, been focused sorry on Sorry to cut you up, but how, how healthy are they? Is there like a life expectancy thing? You know, these are the questions I'm sure people are gonna be, Interested because I mean it sounds sounds good to me, but I, I'm just curious on how how healthy these people are. They're very healthy. They're very healthy. There's studies, and this is what's fascinating, Chris, and why I just really can't understand why we weren't taught about them in medical school. Because there's a couple of things you can look at. I'll talk about life expectancy, but I want to talk about health span first. So health span is how long any group of humans stays vital. How long they can do a deep squat how long they can get up from sitting, right? How long they can actually run as opposed to using a cane or needing a wheelchair, right? How long a group of humans stays vital? That's health span. And hunter-gatherer tribes have a health span that dwarfs ours. We call this squaring of the morbidity curve because if you draw a morbidity curve in westernized humans, you see that we become more and more decrepit with every generation, with every decade, I should say, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, it just goes down like this, right? I'm kind of, you know, drawing a line down yeah. for people that are listening online. Mm-hmm. And if you look at these hunter-gatherer groups, they're sort of flat. They keep their vitality and then it drops off at the end. You know, the last, the last month or two of their life, they decline quickly, but there are guys in the Hadza tribe that look to be 60 years old, they don't really keep track of their ages. So you can tell there's Mm -hmm. guys that are older, younger, like they've done estimates. Like there are guys 70 years old that are still vital and moving around. And there were guys that were at least probably almost 60 years old that were hunting with us. So they still go out. It's not like, they still go out and they still do everything. You know, even the guys that are older are still shooting the bows and they want to be a part of the tribe. And so their health span is fantastic. And this is the really important thing. They don't get chronic disease. Like we do. They don't have heart attacks. They don't get cancers. Like we do to the same incidence. The incidence is minuscule, minuscule, right? You look at the United States, like heart disease affects man, almost half of the population you know, the, the number of people that die from heart attacks every year is colossal on the order of million plus, you know, millions of people die. And these guys never get heart attacks. They don't get cancers. You don't see them with like eczema or autoimmunity. They don't need to wear glasses, you know, like they don't have, they don't have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. They don't have chronic illness. They don't get ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease. They're incredibly healthy and free from chronic disease. You would think that in medical school, they would say, Oh, let's, let's contrast this for you guys. 
I, I want to teach this class in a medical school at some point in the future. It's a goal of mine. So the anthropology of medicine and just say, look at westernized populations. Look at this cohort, whether it's from the United States or Canada or Central America, any westernized population, even, even Asian countries are becoming, quote, westernized. They have increasing rates of diabetes and obesity. You look at the United States, for instance, our rates of overweight and obesity are around 70% if you combine those two things, right? Mm. Obesity and overweight are different levels of BMI. Yeah. But if you combine overweight and obese, we're at 70%, Chris. There, were, there was one woman in the whole tribe who was obese, and I'll tell you her story. But otherwise, there were zero obese people wow. in this group, zero overweight, zero. And so you ask the chief, what happened with, the, with this woman? You know, you kind of say like, what, what happened? And they said, she's been hanging out. She's been spending time in town with the missionaries. And what do the missionaries feed them? They feed them seed oils and corn porridge. So they're, feed, they're, they're taking them away from their ancestral you know, foods and they're giving them higher, more processed food. And then they get obese, right? It's just the same thing that happens over and over. It's not That's, it's a, not that's a great study right there. Yeah, right? It's not yeah. rocket science. Yeah. yeah. So you wow. see, and then the life expectancy thing is really important to clarify for people because this gets misunderstood all the time. So if we look at these hunter-gatherer groups, we have to be very careful that we don't confuse their life expectancy in a certain way. If you look at the overall life expectancy, people will say that they have a life expectancy of 40 or 50 years. But if they live to be 15 or 16 years old, their life expectancy is the same as ours or greater, meaning they live into their mid to late 70s generally. So what's the difference? The difference is a much higher infant mortality and that skews the overall life expectancy. So this gets repeated over and over. And so you could ask, well, why is there such a high infant mortality? Well, when you have a baby born in the bush, there's a higher infant mortality. Like if there's yeah. any hemorrhaging, if anything goes wrong with the pregnancy, mother and baby might die. Or what if the baby is just, I mean, there were literally one-year-old babies toddling around camp by themselves. What if there's a snake? You know, they could fall over. Like they raise their kids completely differently. The kids grow up to be very independent, but there's a lot of danger when you live in the bush in Africa, yeah. you know, like, and so of course, infant mortality is a little bit higher and, or I should say significantly higher. And that skews the life expectancy. So this gets repeated, gotcha. this gets repeated ad nauseum. And it's just not true. If you look at these hunter gatherer groups across the globe, people will say their life expectancy is low, but it's invariably skewed by a high infant mortality. So I'll just wrap this up. I've been quite long winded. I hope it's been interesting. Oh, no, this is super interesting. I love this. The, uh, I want to you know, go. I want to go visit the Hadza now. You could, that, man. That you sounds could. Sounds like an eye-opening experience. Yeah, and there's pictures and videos of my experiences with them on my social media. You can see it all. It's so cool. But you know, it's like so. This is kind of like I said. You can look at the medical literature, and I'll talk about why it makes sense. But you go to actually visit these people, and this is where you sort of reverse engineer, and you think, okay, meat is the center of their diet. I think that if people eat more well-raised meat, they're going to feel healthier. And if they're going to eat plant foods, which I think is beneficial for most people, don't overeat the vegetables. And we can talk about why that is, which is kind of the next piece of the story, because they don't, they don't do this. Like they don't eat salads, man. They're not, we're not, we're not out hunting and they're like, Ooh, that's a very delicious looking pumpkin leaf. They're not even <laughs> going to look at a pumpkin leaf, right? Yeah. They're not going to eat that. They might eat that if they're starving, they will use these foods in times of scarcity or starvation, but their, their choice of foods and the hierarchy of foods they prefer is very clear. It's meat, fruit, honey, and then tubers are last. And then like, like very last is things like seeds or 
or leaves from plants. And so that's the way I kind of designed an animal-based diet. And really, I just am taking uh, instruction from them thinking, okay, if you're going to do this, I think that the most species appropriate way a human could eat is to focus on meat and organs. And if you can't get fresh organs, get desiccated organs, like we talked about. And then, and we can talk about, we can break it all down for people and tell them how much of these to eat too. And then, you know, if you want to add fruit to your diet, that's great. And there's different things that are fruit that we don't think of as fruit, like avocado or cucumber, or even squash that I think are less toxic parts of plants that make it a lot of variety. Um, But don't make that the majority of your diet. And then you can have some honey. And then, you know, if you, if you want to eat the vegetables and stuff, do it really sparingly or not at all. And I don't think you'll be missing anything. So I'll pause there and see if you have any questions and then we can maybe dig into why I'm not a fan of the vegetables because that is what blows people's minds. That, that's actually what I wanted you to get into. I want to get into the toxicity of the vegetables and kind of like the beginning times and why it became toxic and that whole thing that you have explained to me. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was listening to Joe's podcast the other day. I think it was on Rogan that I heard this. There are, plants are smart. <laughs> plants are really, really smart. And we have to expand this, like the timeline and realize that, that plants have been co-evolving with animals for millions and millions of years, millions and millions of years, a long time. And plants are rooted in the ground. So they can't run away. They don't have any defense mechanisms. And there's a lot of animals that want to eat plants. They're herbivorous animals. And so plants have out of necessity evolved defense mechanisms, chemicals in different parts that say to the animals like, hey, don't eat me or don't overeat me. And this is, I think, what we've forgotten. It's not really conjecture or opinion, it's botanical science. But just to give an illustration of how smart plants are, uh, I heard this, that, that there are flowers that can hear the frequency of a bee's wings. And when they hear that, they increase the amount of nectar in the flower so that the bee comes in and has more to get the nectar so the bees will move the pollen. Isn't that incredible? That's, and then that's there's, a, there's another type of plant that if it hears or senses the vibration, the sound of a caterpillar eating its leaves, it will put more toxins in the leaves to dissuade the caterpillar from eating it. So this is the, like, we often, I think, see house plants and we think they're beautiful, but they're dumb, right? You know, you can yeah. just walk over, you know, your two-year-old can walk over and just like step on a plant and kill it but they're pretty smart, you know, they're pretty smart. And they, in the leaves and the stems and the seeds, which are sort of the reproductive parts of plants, the plant babies, they've put a lot of chemicals that dissuade us from eating them. And, you know, hunter gatherer tribes understand this. And this isn't really, like I said, conjecture or opinion, this is fact. So if you just walk out of your house in South Carolina, or I walk out of my house in, in Costa Rica, and I just start eating green things, I'm going to get sick. Like I might even die. Like it's not going to be long before I have a stomach ache. I have diarrhea. I puke. Like mostly nothing around me here is edible. You know, there's, I'm in Costa Rica. So this is actually probably the most edible place I've ever been. There's actually a banana tree right there with fruit, which is a different story that I'll talk about. And there's a papaya tree over there with fruit. And there's a coconut tree over there with coconuts that I could drink, but that's it. I can't go eating a coconut palm or a banana tree or anything. It's like these plants don't want to get eaten. And some of them even have spikes but they've all put defense chemicals in them to prevent animals from just eating them like crazy. And we've forgotten this. So, so wait, uh, just, just curious, like when you're going through medical school and you know, you're becoming a nutritionist, are, are people taught that vegetables have toxins in them and that eating too much of it could possibly be a bad thing? It, will they admit that at least? Like, is there any, no, 
No, the only one that you hear about canonically is gluten. And gluten is a lectin and lectins are carbohydrate binding proteins. So some of your audience might've heard of lectins. These occur in the seeds of plants primarily. And again, they're proteins that bind to carbohydrates in the gut. And they seem to be very disruptive to our gut lining. So things like beans and seeds and grains and nuts all have lectins. Now, lectins are found in other foods as well, but the ones in, in these seeds, these are all seeds, these are all plant pieces that if you plant them in the ground, they'll grow a plant. Like an almond is a seed, even though we call it a nut. Gotcha. Uh, you know, a bean is a seed, even though we call it a bean, right? A grain is a, is a seed, even though we call it a grain. Like if you plant a grain of wheat, it will grow into a wheat plant. That's how it works, right? Mm. So these are all, these are all lectin containing things. And so we learned about gluten, which is a very widely known lectin that is involved with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease. And the thing is that the gluten fragment looks like a bacteria. So in a lot of people, uh, in some people, I should say, they will develop a frank autoimmune illness called celiac disease, where these villi in the small intestine regress and the small intestine gets smooth. And that's a bad thing because the finger-like projections in the small intestine increase the surface area for absorption of nutrients. So if your small intestine turns into a, turns into a smooth tube as opposed to a finger projection tube, you lose all the surface area and these people get massively malnourished. Now, there's a lot of really interesting research done by a pediatric gastroenterologist at Harvard named Alessio Fasano, suggesting that the gluten molecule will open tight junctions in the gut, causing leaky gut, quote unquote, in all humans. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Like wheat and this lectin in wheat is just not something that we're really evolved to see. And you can give it to any human, even a human that doesn't demonstrate frank celiac disease and see a protein released called zonulin, which is indicative of these gap junctions in the gut opening up and you get leaky gut, meaning the gut opens and the immune system cells, which are on the body side of the gut, move into the, move into the lumen of the gut. You get all this interaction between bacteria in the gut and the immune system, and it triggers all sorts of problems. There's a lot of people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and I would argue that humans are just not well adapted to eat gluten at all. So yeah. that's one that you might learn about. And so but, inflammation markers and, and things to that degree are going to go up usually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you, you might need to look at specific, and there's a lot of different inflammation markers to look at, but you would yeah. see that, or people might have GI symptoms or some autoimmune disease that they don't think is related to gluten. I've heard this so often, Chris, people have like sleep disturbance and they stop gluten and the sleep disturbance gets better but you're not taught in medical school, like, oh, this guy's insomnia could be a gluten intolerance. No, no, definitely not. You never taught that. And we're never taught about the potential toxins in plants, but they're out there. I mean, it's no question. There are- I, Oh my God. I want to, at some point, want to get into why, why we're not taught this, but- I, I think we're on the, the cutting edge of this. You know, I, I'll, I'll talk about it, but okay. I think that, I think that in general, people feel like vegetables are, are, are more beneficial than they are harmful. And I'm, I'm questioning that. Hang on notion. One Colton, say hi to Dr. Saldino. Say hi. What's up, buddy? All right. You got to go out of the room now. I'm doing a podcast. That's the, this is the first time this has happened. <laughs> go out. You have to leave. Go, go, go now. Out, out. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fine. No, just that I think that there's an argument to be made that vegetables are more beneficial than they are harmful, but I've just called that into question and we can talk about why, okay. but there's lots of these chemicals in plants that are defense chemicals. And maybe talking about a few other examples will help illustrate this for people. So have you ever heard of sorrel? Do you ever go in the wilderness and see this like wild plant called sorrel and you can die from eating sorrel. 
because there's so, so, so much. What, what is it? It's a vegetable. It's like a, it's, it's it's like a leaf of a plant. Yeah, it's okay. called sheep sorrel. And people say like, oh, it's edible, but you can die from eating this because it has so much oxalate. Oxalic acid is another thing in plants that can be harmful for humans. So you can die from oxalic acid poisoning by eating too much sorrel. Well, rhubarb leaves also have a lot of oxalic acid. There are documented cases of poisoning from rhubarb leaves. When you go to the store, they'll only give you the rhubarb stem. They won't give you the rhubarb leaf or you're not supposed to eat the leaf. It has way too much oxalic acid. Well, guess what else also has a lot of oxalic acid? Kale. Spinach. 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 Spinach, yeah. Kale has a lot of something else, but spinach has a lot of oxalic acid. You could could create a lot of problems from yourself eating a lot of spinach. Now, you'd probably get really nauseous and just get really sick of eating the spinach first, but you you could actually give yourself a pretty darn close to toxic dose of spinach just by eating spinach that you would find in the grocery store, going to the Whole Foods, you know, salad aisle and making a massive salad, like it'd have to be a huge salad, but you could do it. So there are toxins in these foods. That's just one. And then there's other this toxins. Is just, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is all just, it's so crazy for anybody to hear because it goes no, no. against all conventional knowledge they've ever learned, you know, and um, is there places that they could go to see this? somewhere else where they're like, oh, wow, there's actually studies and this is, this is no joke. Like you could, I could actually die from eating too much spinach and it's not healthy for me to be eating all this spinach. Yeah. So there are places. Um, so I wrote a book, it's called the carnivore code. It's a little bit heavy, <laughs> it's, but it's technical. You know, if you have audience members, if you have people, if people are listening to this and they really want to see the studies, it's all in the book. The book has over 600 references. It's all there. But if you know anyone, do you know anyone who's had a kidney stone? Uh, most kidney stones are calcium oxalate. They will tell you don't eat spinach because it's going to contribute to calcium oxalate kidney stones. But what about all the people who don't get kidney stones who are still accumulating all this oxalic acid in their body? Maybe it's benign, but I think for a lot of us, it could potentially be causing issues. We know that oxalic acid accumulates in the thyroid and can accumulate in joints, but oxalic acid is just one of these plant defense chemicals. There's other ones that are much more overt. Um, and this one will be really interesting for people because they've always heard this example. So let's talk about sulforaphane. Have you heard of sulforaphane? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Don't ask me any questions about it though. I know, but you've at least heard of it, right? Like yeah, most people it, have yeah. heard of sulforaphane. So sulforaphane, I ask people this question because it helps as a lead in. Like sulforaphane is talked about in like broccoli sprouts or broccoli powder or kale. People are like, oh, sulforaphane's in there. It's good for you. So I'll ask people, I don't know if I asked Joe this when I was on the podcast with him, but I'll, I'll do it the next time and say, how much sulforaphane is in broccoli? And the answer is, is zero until you chew it. So you see this pattern in plants a lot where there's a pre-chemical that's inert and then an enzyme that converts that pre-chemical into a more toxic version of the chemical. It's like a booby trap, right? It's like you step in a bear trap, boom, it slams shut and gets you, right? So this is what's fascinating. The intention of plants is very clear here. The precursor to sulforaphane, some of these names are very esoteric, so don't worry about the names, but just think about the concept. The precursor is called glucoraphanin, and there's an enzyme called myrosinase. And so there's glucoraphanin and myrosinase in broccoli and kale. And then when you chew the broccoli or kale, you are combining the myrosinase with the glucoraphanin and sulforaphane is produced. But there was no sulforaphane in there until an animal chews on it. This is kind of like what I said with the plant that increases the toxins when it hears a caterpillar chewing. This group of plants, the brassicates, kale, collard greens, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, it's all the same plant. These are, they figured out that they can put this, this, this series of defense chemicals 
in their, in their leaves, and this enzyme myrosinase. And so you get these glucosinolates, of which glucoraphanin is one, that combine with myrosinate to make isothiocyanates, which is sulforaphane is an isothiocyanate. So basically, A plus B equals C, with mm-hmm. C being much more toxic. But we are told that, that this toxin is actually good for us. So where's the disconnect here? So we're also, let's just unpack it a little more. I promise I'm getting there. Mm-hmm. So forophane, we are told, is an antioxidant, right? You've heard that? Yep. And if you really dig into general chemistry and you understand what oxidation is, it's paired with reduction. It's just the movement of electrons. So oxidation is loss of electrons and gain of electrons is reduction. So when we say something is an antioxidant, we mean that that molecule is going to give electrons to a molecule that has unpaired electrons. That's, that's like a free radical. People have probably heard the term free radical. It's kind of a bad thing. You don't want molecules in your body with unpaired electrons. They create damage. These free radicals create oxidative damage. Um, and so antioxidants are going to give back an electron to a molecule that has an unpaired electron. That's an antioxidant. Mm-hmm. Well, sephorophane isn't an antioxidant at all. It's the opposite. It's a pro-oxidant. That's why it doesn't exist in broccoli and kale. So the, the marketing campaign is very misleading because sulforaphane is not an antioxidant. It's a pro-oxidant, meaning it goes into your body and it strips electrons off of your molecules. It makes free radicals. And so people are listening to this going, wait a minute, this is completely crazy. Like I've been told all these molecules are, are antioxidants. They're not. They're pro-oxidants. And again, this is not opinion or conjecture. This is, this is actual science of plants. Now, where it gets confusing is that when you eat a compound like this and it creates oxidation in your body, it creates a free radical, your body's really smart and you have an enzymatic system in your liver that turns on your body's antioxidant system. So sulforaphane is turning on your body's antioxidant system. And that's why we get confused into thinking that it's beneficial, right? Because it's triggering our body's antioxidant system. If sulforaphane didn't have any other bad side effects, then you could make an argument and say, hey, here's a poison in a plant. It triggers an antioxidant response in me. Maybe it's like a little bit of a poison makes me stronger. But I would argue that doesn't really hold up to intense scrutiny because what you realize is that you can get your body's antioxidant system to turn on without these toxic molecules, right? And there are many other toxic molecules that we know are toxic that we don't ingest that also turn on our body's antioxidant system, like lead, mercury, arsenic, right? Those all also turn on your body's antioxidant system. So what's really crazy about our body is when you exercise, that creates oxidative stress. That turns on your antioxidant system as well with no molecules going into your body. When you're in the sun, it does it. When you go in a sauna, it does it. When you go on a cold bath, it does it. All these things in your life. So what I'm saying is, and I advanced this thesis in my book, that you don't need these plant molecules to have optimal antioxidant status. The molecules we're talking about in the human body are things like glutathione. People may have seen that supplement, glutathione. You make glutathione in your body. If you give your body enough of the nutrients it needs to make glutathione and you do things in your life, you go in the sun, you exercise, maybe you go on a sauna. I know you just got a sauna. Oh you know? yeah, it did. Love it. Yeah. Shout out to and medical you, saunas. Right? Yeah. And you get, are you going a cold plunge? If you do things like this, right? If you exercise, you're going to turn on your glutathione, given you have the nutrients to make that. Where do you get the nutrients to make glutathione? Things like meat. <laughs> glutathione is a three amino acid molecule. You need those amino acids, which are predominantly found in meat. You need B6, 
Best source of B6 is definitely meat, right? You can turn on your antioxidant response without these plant molecules at all. And the last piece of the equation was sulforaphane. How we really determine if it has any net benefit, right? Because there's risks and benefits to every medication. Every molecule we use in medicine has risks and benefits. So we're only told about the benefits. We're never told about the side effects of these molecules, but it has a lot of side effects, just like any drug you take. You know, I'm sure that in your, in your history, you've taken drugs, whether it's an allergy medication. When I was growing up, I had to take inhalers for my asthma and they'll do good things, but they have other bad side effects. Mm -hmm. And when I was working in cardiology, uh, you know, I would give people statin drugs and I don't do this anymore. I don't, that's a whole different rabbit hole, but you know, those statins do something that we intend for them to do. They also inhibit the production of coenzyme Q10, lead to muscle aches and all sorts of problems. We know drugs have side effects. So do these plant molecules have side effects? You bet they do. So sulforaphane these, and this isothiocyanate family of compounds is really good at inhibiting iodine absorption at the level of the thyroid. That's why plants make it. That's the booby trap. So the idea is that if animals eat too much of these plants in the wild, they will inhibit their thyroid. They won't grow, they won't reproduce, and they'll essentially move themselves out of the gene pool because they've eaten too much of this plant toxin. Even herbivorous animals know this. So this is the, this is the trap that these plants are putting us in. And I think that this over-deification or this, this non-consideration of these plant toxins has led us to, in many cases, to overconsume vegetables. And we're thinking, oh, they're so good for me, right? They have nutrients. But if you really dig into all this, you realize like the nutrients you want are found in animal foods. Like I don't care whether it's potassium, magnesium, vitamin C, like you can get vitamin C in fruit, but you know, things like riboflavin, folate, B vitamins, amino acids, these are in animal foods. Animal foods are where you get your nutrients and your vitamins and your minerals. You can get them in plants, but they're actually not as bioavailable as they are in animal foods. And they come with this burden of these plant toxins, these defense chemicals. So obviously this is a whole huge amount to unpack. We scratch yeah. the surface, I'll yeah. let you ask any questions. And if people have more, questions that you can always go to my book. There's, there's tons more there, but this is the idea that, Hey, look, why are we eating vegetables in the first place? We've been told they're quote, good for us. I don't agree with that. I think we need to assume the opposite. They're trying to kill us. That's clear. All of the vitamins and minerals you find in plants are present in animal foods plus more. And many of these molecules we're told are so good for us in plants are not actually net beneficial. They have bad side effects that are ignored. And we're, we're really just kind of decreasing our body's ability to be optimal. Now, the last thing I'll say before I hand the, the mic back over to you is if somebody's listening to this and you're thriving, don't change a thing on your diet. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to tell anyone how to eat, but I really feel like it's valuable to offer this message to people who are not thriving, who are not optimal or who want to optimize or to want to see like, Hey, could this eczema that I've had for 20 years, be related to a mushroom that I'm eating or this kale, or maybe the, maybe I'd feel better without some vegetables or maybe my GI problems. Like maybe I would have more regular bowel movements or less gas, you know, if I cut out some of these vegetables in my diet, or maybe, maybe this other thing would get better. So that's, that's what I offer because I see this over and over, Chris, like I can't even tell you how many people uh, with, with autoimmune diseases that they've been told for their whole life would never get better, get better when they do this, you know, yeah. everything under the sun. It's crazy. Um, just two questions I know people will have because people have asked uh, me this question when I was on the carnivore diet is one, 
what what's the difference between if, if vegetables created these defense mechanisms what's the difference between vegetables and fruit did the fruit create these defense mechanisms because they can't move as well and also um like cows and you know you know most of the stuff where you know we you want us to eat is grass fed type stuff now does grass have toxins and does that affect the meat and and what we're eating well yeah great questions so let if this is the fruit is really the last part of the plant story so you can imagine if you think like a plant you don't want an animal to eat your leaves or your stems or your roots but you actually want the animal to eat the fruit that's why you make it and that's why you make it bright and sweet so plants want animals to eat their fruit. And often they'll put the seed in like a sh hard shell, not always. Sometimes they'll make a lot of seeds, but you don't want animals to eat your seeds or you at least want some of those seeds to survive in their poop to fertilize and go somewhere else and grow a new plant. Or you'll make like a seed in a hard shell, like an almond, if people have seen that in an almond fruit or like a peach or a, uh, a cherry or something, a stone fruit. Yep. So, but, but plants want their fruit to get eaten. Not 100% of the time, but the majority of the time, those fruits are not toxic for animals. They're, they're trying to get these things to be eaten, whether it's berries or stone fruits or, you know, bananas, uh, you know, evolutionarily, they look different today than they were. But, you know, they're trying to get these things to be eaten and they want animals to eat the fruit and then eat a few seeds and then fly somewhere else and then poop the seeds out and move them around. So fruit doesn't really seem to have all these same defense chemicals. And then people ask the same question for me. They say, well, if plants have these defense chemicals, how do cows and other animals eat them? And so there's no question that these, these plants have chemicals. And if you look at um, people who study animal behavior and zoology and the way that the herbivorous animals eat, they'll tell you there's a great, there's a guy who's done great research on this called Fred Provenza. And he's published multiple papers in a book, uh, I believe as well. And he, you can see that animals will not just eat one plant uh, until it's all gone. They'll eat a little bit of one, a little bit of another, a little bit of another, because they realize there are different alkaloids, another type of plant defense molecule in these plants that the plant that the animals, even the herbivorous animals, are trying to avoid getting too much of. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're eating little bits of these plants. And if you give these animals uh, a medication that, that prevents nausea, they will overeat <laughs> these plants. They will change the amount of plants. So there is clearly a nausea response in these animals. But here's the thing. These animals are herbivorous. They have millions of years of evolution to eating just the plant. So they're, they're about as good as you're gonna get at detoxifying these plant molecules. And it's not that humans can't detoxify these plant molecules. It's that why should we if more high quality food is available and people might not all be the same, have the same ability to detoxify these molecules in the liver. There are two enzymatic systems. Well, there's multiple enzymatic systems, but there's phase one and phase two detoxification that probably evolved in our ancestors as a response to these plant chemicals. The whole reason we have detoxification enzymes in our liver is because of these plant molecules, right? This is why these are around. Yeah. And so animals that are exclusively herbivorous, this is what they're doing. They, they eat these plants all the time. They're smart about which ones they eat. They don't overeat unless they're forced to. And when they are forced to, there's evidence of mass die-offs. There's evidence of animals being corralled in small spaces and they all die because they overeat a certain plant. Mm. This, has been, this has happened multiple times unless they're allowed to move freely like they would in the wild. And so animals know it, but they just have a better ability to detoxify these things in their body. And so we're kind of letting the animals do the work for us. And this brings up one more point that I'll just piggyback here. People hear this and the word carnivore, 
gets bandied around a lot. I think people understand the word and they think, oh, okay, a meat diet or a mostly meat diet, like we talked about. I like the word animal-based, mm-hmm. kind of in contradistinction to plant-based. Plant-based being mostly plants, animal-based being mostly animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I know who I'd pick in a fight. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, sure. I don't but, know. Those plant toxins are pretty strong. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But if you had, you know, I've often thought it would be funny to have like, you know, like a cage match, like all the vegans versus all the carnivores. Like, I think you can tell who's going to be stronger. You know, if you yeah. look at the general population, people might say, oh, there's these vegan bodybuilders. Well, yeah, they're probably taking, you know, performance enhancing drugs and they're eating a whole bunch of synthetic you know, yeah. chemical, a synthetic protein, the ground rules are that you can't eat anything processed. So like, show me all the vegans who can only eat non-processed plant foods. They can't eat any protein powders, any of the stuff that wouldn't have been around. And then you'll, I'll take all the carnivores or people who are eating meat, right. With a little bit of fruit and they can eat as much meat as they want. Cause that's just an animal and you kill it. Right. And yeah. then we'll, then we'll have them wrestle and we'll see who wins. And I think there's yeah. no question. I know which side I want to be on. I know. Right. Yeah. Definitely. But people always respond and they say, well, we know that humans are omnivores. Why are we talking about carnivores? Humans aren't carnivores. And they're absolutely right. Like cats are carnivores. Humans are like dogs. We're omnivores. And you can see all this. We didn't really talk about changes in the gut and all that stuff, but it's, we can clearly see we're omnivores. Mm-hmm. But when you really dig into that, that point, it's quite fascinating. When you look at omnivores in zoology, the majority of omnivores, more than 75% of omnivores, either lean toward plants or they lean toward animals. And I think that based on what we know about the Hadza and anthropology, and even a bunch of studies that I didn't go into, looking at the growth of the human brain. Yeah, I want to go into that at some point, but keep, yeah, yeah, yeah next. Yeah. We'll go into that next. Yeah, yeah. Back into that after. We'll piggyback into that. It's pretty clear that humans are animal based omnivores. And that's what we see with the Hadza, right? We're omnivores. If you get in a pinch evolutionarily and you run out of food, like, and you run out of animals, you could go over there and eat some plant leaves and it might sustain you for a day until you can go do something like hunt, but that's not your preferred food. We're animal-based omnivores. And that's, that's what I'm trying to communicate to people here. So yeah, the, so we talked about the Hadza and, but if you go back further, if you go back 2 million years, 4 million years. There's a couple of really fascinating stories to be told there as well. So, you know, there's, there's this history of humans having evolved from chimpanzees and bonobos, these chimp and bonobo ancestors. And there's an intermediate species called Australopithecus. That's a Lucy. People may have heard of these Lucy fossils that are 3.7 million years old. And then Australopithecus evolves into Homo habilis and Homo erectus. So that's the first of the hominids, the Homo. And if you saw Homo habilis or Homo erectus on the street, you'd probably look twice and think they, they, they might look a little different, but they might be able to pass for a human. They might look a little rough or like a big jaw or like a huge head or something. Who knows? But they, they, look, they look mostly human. Uh, Australopithecus didn't look superhuman. And then Homo habilis and Homo erectus evolved into Homo sapiens. But that transition between Australopithecus and Homo erectus, Homo habilis happened about 2 million years ago. And, and two things are interesting to note about that time. The first thing is that there's, an, there's another species that we never hear about called Paranthropus robustus or Paranthropus bozii. And Paranthropus went extinct. So Australopithecus appears to have evolved into two species, Homo habilis and Paranthropus or Paranthropus robustus. And that is actually the transition between animal-based and plant-based because you can look at the fossilized remains of Paranthropus from 3 million years ago. And you can do dating of these bones. And then you can look at the the stable isotopes and get a sense of what they were eating. 
You can look at strontium, barium, calcium isotopes in the bone of the teeth or other parts of the enamel and get a sense of where they were getting their protein from. And you can see that Paranthropus was more of a plant eater. So we had a split in our history where we were sort of this generalist, you know, Australopithecus eating some plants, some animals, and Homo habilis goes and eats more animals. Paranthropus goes and eats more plants. Paranthropus went extinct. Homo habilis, the brain of Homo habilis got bigger and bigger and bigger and went from maybe 600 CC to 1500 CC over the next two million years as Homo habilis went from Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and Homo sapiens. So we can go back and look at our brain size and think, okay, we have a brain of around 1500 CC, maybe a little bit smaller, looking at the cranial vault in a human. And the bigger the brain allows for more neocortex and processing, and we can do more with our brains. But, you know, a million years ago, our brains were smaller. And a million years before that, our brains were a lot smaller. So what happened 2 million years ago? Well, if you look at the fossil record, that's where you start to see bifacial tools. They're called Acheulean tools. And these tools are used for hunting. That's when we start to see like arrowheads and spear tips. And we start to see cut marks on bones and injury marks on bones from where they would throw a spear and it hits the bone of an animal. And then you start to see mass animal graves where our ancestors appear to have become smart enough to herd animals off a cliff and then they all die or they herd them into a blind, you know, a blind uh, canyon that has no escape and then they just mass slaughter them. And a lot of them go to waste, but they eat as many as they can. So if you see this over and over, and then you can look at fossilized remains of humans in that two million year period, or even 50,000 years ago and see, well, we were eating mostly meat. Like if you look at the stable isotopes, there's even papers out there that show, and I could send you this if you want to post it, like Neanderthals were carnivorous, quote unquote, meaning they were eating like more than 70% of their protein from animal foods. And you can tell this from these stable isotopes, Neanderthals and coexisting Homo sapiens, I should say. So there was another split in the lineage, maybe 600,000 years ago, where Neanderthalensis, you know, went off from Homo sapiens. And so we split uh, a little while ago and that's the end of Neanderthals went extinct. We all have a little bit of Neanderthal DNA. There's other species, Denisovans. Uh, there's all this crazy human history that happened. You know, Homo sapiens only really been around 500 to 350,000 years ago, but you can look at the fossilized remains and tell where we were getting our protein from. And it's always been mostly meat. Like we're described as carnivorous for our whole evolution, or at least the last few hundred thousand years. And then it looks like 2 million years ago, that spark eating meat made us human. And it makes a lot of sense that it would have because there are unique nutrients in meat. I kind of hinted at this earlier. Plant foods are okay in a pinch, but I feel like they're survival foods and they've always been used as survival foods for us as humans. But animal foods have so many unique nutrients that are not found in plant foods. And this is never talked about in medical school, right? The creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, Answering, taurine, K2, B12, folate, biotin, riboflavin. These are all nutrients. The list goes on and on that are critical for optimal human health that are only found in animal foods in any appreciable quantity. The, the first one I mentioned, creatine, a lot of wrestlers or, yeah. you know. I use creatine. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's bad? I think it's amazing. Okay. Creatine is amazing. Yeah. I know there's a lot of studies on like it's been studied a long time in comparison to a lot of other supplements. I know that. It's incredibly beneficial, but it's found in meat. So every pound of meat has a gram or two of creatine. And so what we know is that the more creatine you get, the smarter you are. And I'll clarify that statement. They've done studies with vegans and vegetarians who obviously don't have any creatine in their diet. 
and they give them five grams of a creatine supplement per day or 20 grams as a loading dose. And they automatically get better with memory tasks, verbal tasks, uh, card sorting tasks. So like you can basically, if you're creatine deficient, your brain is not working as well as it could and your muscles are not working as well as they could. Most of us who eat an animal-based diet are getting enough creatine. The downside of creatine, I'm sure you know this as a wrestler, is that you can eat too much and you can cause some dehydration issues or it kind of holds on, holds on to water, you know? So I think sometimes people, you know, if not you much eat, though at all, I, I will yeah. say, like I, I used it for training camps and as I got closer to the fight, I stayed on it. And there was one time where I, I came off early because I was worried about holding on to water. And, it, and then the next time I didn't, I stayed on it. And really there was no difference, maybe a pound, if anything. Perfect. Yeah. There's really, I mean, there's not a lot of downsides to creatine. The only thing I would say is you can get, you can get it from meat, but I think it's a good thing for people to supplement if they're not eating a ton of meat. And we can talk about how much meat people could eat, but you know, what we know about creatine is if you're getting five grams a day, which is a lot of meat, that would be two, two, two and a half pounds of meat per day or three pounds, mm -hmm. which some of us eat. I definitely will eat three pounds of meat in some days. If you're getting five grams of creatine per day, then you're, you're maxing out your creatine consistent five grams a day, you'll, you'll fill your muscle stores with creatine. So that's an interesting, actually physiologic marker that might suggest like, oh, maybe we should be eating that much meat. And yeah. in the Hadza and the Ikum, when they have a kill and they have enough for the whole tribe, they'll eat as much as four and a half pounds of meat per day, mm. you know, when they have it. So going back to the evolution, uh, aspect, when did, when did human beings start like growing their own plants and food and, you know, crops and farming and that, when did that start happening? And then what shift did you, is there any shift that was seen with that? Oh yeah. There's definitely a shift with that. That's really, really recent. So we talked about 4 million years ago, Australopithecus, Paranthropus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, 2 million years ago, Homo sapiens, 350,000 years ago. The Neolithic revolution with agriculture is 10 to 15,000 years ago. So it's very, very recent. And nobody knows why we started doing that. Some people say it was a meteor uh, that, that may have hit the earth and wiped out a lot of species. There were, there's evidence for mass extinctions. Um, maybe we out hunted all the big game, um, but we turned to growing crops. And there's really good evidence looking at the fossil record um, that when we started growing crops, our health got much worse. People got shorter. There were more bone lesions connected with infections. There was more bone, um, what's called parotic hyperostosis, which is a spongiform change of the skull and other trabecular bone um, that is related to nutrient deficiencies, iron and other minerals. And you see much more of that when we became agrarian. And so this is, you know, there's, a, there's, an art, there's an author named Jared Diamond who's written Collapse, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and a few other books. And he's called this the worst mistake in human history. And he called it the cult of the seed. And I think it's, it's kind of true in some ways. I think that um, uh, Yuval uh, Noah Harari talked about this in Sapiens as well. But this, this transition to agriculture was pretty catastrophic for humans. Uh, you can imagine that we were growing things like wheat or corn, which are not complete human foods. And you kind of end up with malnourished humans that live long enough to reproduce, but then aren't very vital and have a lot of sort of chronic illness, uh, nutrient deficiencies, and, and weakness in their bony structure and other things moving forward, uh, evident from the fossil record. So that's that's very clear that that's happened, and it's it's quite indicative. Gotcha. Is there is there any autoimmune diseases that flourish with a meat diet? Is that something that you've seen? 
you know, <laughs> like you wouldn't suggest them coming and doing a carnivore or animal based diet because of their autoimmune disease? This is a good question to address. I can tell you that the majority of people I work with see improvement in their autoimmunity with, with this sort of change. Not everybody, you know, I don't think everything works for, I don't think anything works for everyone, but this is pretty darn powerful. And I think it's pretty darn safe. There were a few people that I worked with who had something else going on, whether it was mold toxicity or heavy metals or something. And, and sometimes changing the diet is, is not enough. Um, the only group of people that I can think of where eating this way might be harmful would be people with pre-existing chronic kidney disease. So if people have damaged their kidneys and they have what's called an elevated creatinine or poor kidney function, you want to be careful about how much kidney, how much protein you eat. So if someone's on dialysis, for instance, because of hypertension or diabetes, it's kind of an end stage process and your kidneys are not going to be able to process all the protein. You just won't. So in that case, chronic kidney disease, you just would want to check with your doctor before you increase your protein this much. I worked with a woman who also had only one kidney. Um, so if you have one kidney, you may not be able to eat quite as much protein. You'd want to eat as much protein as you could, and then you could fill in with more carbohydrates. But protein is generally well tolerated by humans. People always ask, isn't too much protein going to hurt my kidneys? No, if your kidneys are healthy, you can eat a heck of a lot of protein every day with no problem. And a lot of protein isn't going to hurt your liver. But if you have injured kidneys from, like I said, hypertension, diabetes, trauma, cancer, and a removal, a nephrectomy, something like that, you may not be able to eat this much protein on your diet. And that could be a problem. Gotcha. The other group of people, and they'll know this, is people with uh, phenylketonuria, um, PKU. It's a disease, uh, it's a genetic disease where you don't, uh, you don't really break down phenylalanine very well. And people who have PKU know that they, they, can't, um, they can't eat meat, they can't eat protein. So that's, that's going to be a bad thing for them too. It's kind of a genetic inborn error of metabolism. So basically kidney issues is something that you have to really consider before going on this diet. If you have, if you have pre-existing kidney pre-existing kidney issues, and you got to okay. know what's causing your kidney issues. Like sometimes people have pre-existing kidney issues related to uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes. In that case, doing this would probably help. Right. Mm -hmm. But you just have to watch your creatinine and watch your kidney function. So mainly I'm thinking about people who have stage three, stage four, stage five, chronic kidney disease. And they'll know that based on their glomerular filtration rate and their creatinine. Obviously none of this is medical advice. Consult with your doctor about everything, mm -hmm. but um, uh, you know, some of it is reversible and some of it is, is not, and it's the non-reversible kidney disease. But I should also mention the caveat there is that there are a lot of things in this that I talked about, hypertension, diabetes, um, that, that may not have permanently damaged the kidneys, in which case uh, doing a type of diet like this will be massively helpful and will significantly improve those outcomes. So it's good to know. So people with kidney issues, this is your, uh, this is the note to basically remember, like, be careful. Uh, but about familial um, triglyceride issues or LDL issues like um, cholesterol, what's your thoughts on that and starting this diet? Right, right. So this is actually quite complex. Let's talk about cholesterol and LDL, and then we'll get into familial hypercholesterolemia of various sorts. That's so, uh, triglycerides? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, there's familial hypercholesterolemia, and there's multiple types. And uh, there's one of the types of familial hypercholesterolemia is elevated LDL, which is low-density lipoprotein. And then there's familial hypertriglyceridemia, which is another type of lipoprotein. 
molecule. Well, it's not actually a lipoprotein, but it is a type of lipid. Then we can talk about those. So let's talk about LDL and cholesterol in general, because one of the more insidious beliefs about meat is that it will raise your quote cholesterol and will give you a heart attack. Now, we already kind of know that we should question that based on groups like the Hadza. Um, but here's the thing. LDL is low density lipoprotein. It's a bus that moves around your body. LDL is a bus that moves generally from the liver to the blood vessels and the rest of the body and then back to the liver. Uh, and it carries cholesterol uh, and triglycerides. So cholesterol is different than LDL. LDL is low density lipoprotein. It's a spherical molecule that is a lipid monolayer that contains cholesterol. Cholesterol is a steroid backbone molecule. These terms get conflated, but they're not the same, right? So LDL contains cholesterol and triglycerides in varying amounts. That's how we get the density is the ratio of cholesterol to triglycerides in a lipoprotein particle. When you eat fat, when you eat fat, it's generally digested into triglycerides or some such. It's taken up at the level of your gut into particles called chylomicrons. Those chylomicrons don't live very long. They immediately go to the liver where they deposit the triglyceride or the cholesterol. And then the liver makes cholesterol, a very valuable molecule in our body. It's a precursor for all of the steroid hormones in your body. What makes you a man, what makes me a man, what makes your wife a woman is estrogen, testosterone, our hormones. These are cholesterol-based molecules. It's essential for human life, right? Okay, so cholesterol, cholesterol is not always bad. Not always bad. Okay. I don't think it's... I don't think it's bad in the majority of situations if we are healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Cholesterol is essential. There is a genetic condition called Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome in which there's a defect in the synthesis of cholesterol. These kids often die in utero. Uh, if they're born, they may have mental retardation and severe issues with all sorts of problems, and they really don't live much in childhood. The way that we rescue them, the way that we protect them is by giving them uh, lots and lots of egg yolks. We feed kids tons of cholesterol to circumvent this pathway, and that improves their susceptibility to illness because one of the things that these kids are susceptible to is infection. And you can improve the outcome of these kids by giving them tons of egg yolks, giving them tons and tons of cholesterol. So we know what happens when you don't have enough cholesterol, like humans die without cholesterol. And the LDL particle is involved in the immune system. And the LDL particle serves the invaluable, indispensable, unique role of moving cholesterol, the steroid backbone molecule and triglycerides to cells throughout the body. If you didn't have LDL, your adrenal glands would not be able to make sex hormones, would not be able to make other hormones, mineralocorticoids uh, that, are in, that are crucial for uh, electrolyte maintenance, all these kinds of things. You need these for proper maintenance of every tissue of your body. I mean, really, you know, testicles, ovaries, kidneys, all these tissues need cholesterol coming in LDL. LDL, like I said, is also an immune molecule. It plays a role in the immune response. When you have a bacterial infection, bacteria send out little signals to each other. It's called quorum sensing. And LDL molecules interrupt quorum sensing. So they help you fight off infections. So we have this indispensable molecule that's somehow been vilified. Why is that? Why are we told that LDL is bad? Why is it bad cholesterol, right? Yeah. First of all, it's not cholesterol. It's a molecule. It's a lipoprotein uh, 
uh, monolayer that carries cholesterol and it's associated, keyword there is associated with worse outcomes when it's too high in some people. So what we know about LDL is it does these very valuable roles. It's immune, it moves these particles around the body. It's a bus carrying important passengers that have to go to work, that do important jobs in our body. Why are we told it's bad for us? Well, there's this is really a, a deep rabbit hole, but we find LDL particles in the plaque of atherosclerotic lesions in blood vessels, right? So that's the reason that we're told, oh, um, this particle is trying to kill you. It accumulates in plaque in your arteries and that leads to atherosclerosis and that leads to a heart attack. But what really I think we're missing here is that just because LDL is in a plaque doesn't mean that it caused that plaque to form, right? And this gets a little esoteric, but what happens, what appears to happen, and this isn't all fully understood in medical science, is that LDL moves through the wall of the endothelium of a blood vessel. So in your blood vessels, we're talking about arteries here because that's where these atherosclerotic lesions happen. LDL moves through the wall of a blood vessel and beneath the wall of a blood vessel is a space called the intima. The first layer of blood vessel, if you're inside the blood vessel, imagine you're Rick Moranis and like, honey, I shrunk the kids and you're in that little you know, spaceship and you're moving around your blood vessel, right? Yeah. The first layer is called the endothelium if you're in the blood vessel. And you move through the endothelium, you get into the intimal space. And that's where atherosclerotic plaques form. But what happens is that LDL moves through the endothelium and encounters immune cells in the intima. And sometimes it gets stuck there. It gets stuck to these things called proteoglycans. And when it gets stuck to proteoglycans, it looks like it, a foreign molecule to these macrophages, these immune cells, and they gobble it up. Remember how we said gluten looked like a foreign molecule in your gut? But yeah. LDL, when we eat certain foods, specifically seed oils, vegetable oils, things like corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, more linoleic acid accumulates in the LDL particle and LDL is more likely to become oxidized. There's that word again. When LDL is oxidized or more of these particles make LDL look foreign to the macrophage and the LDL is more likely to get engulfed by the macrophage. And that's the beginning of an atherosclerotic plaque. Obviously, I'm oversimplifying this, but you see here. Yeah. Yeah. But what we're seeing here is that when you have a fire at your house, if the firemen show up to the fire, they didn't cause the fire. They're actually there trying to put it out, right? Mm -hmm. So LDL has been implicated in atherosclerosis, but I don't think LDL is the culprit. I think LDL is kind of an innocent bystander or it's getting involved in something. But there's one more step that we're forgetting about, which is why is LDL getting stuck in that subintimal space? And why is LDL getting engulfed by a macrophage, right? Because LDL serves vital roles. So all of this is kind of very uh, esoteric and predicated on the notion that more LDL is worse. And sometimes when you eat more saturated fat, a very healthy fat found in animal foods, and you eat less of these polyunsaturated fats and vegetable oils, your LDL goes up, but you get healthier, right? Your triglycerides usually goes down, your HDL goes up, your fasting insulin goes down. All the metrics that we use to, to gauge someone's metabolic health get better, but their LDL might go up. Mm. And yet that's why people get confused in medicine yeah. because the, the key thing here is this, and I hope that all that made sense to people. I, I get it. I think, it. I think it actually really makes sense. Um, so basically, it's people who are usually eating unhealthy to begin with. They end yes. up having, you know, blood clot, heart attack or something. And in that is 
LDL was found, LDL. but it was really yes. there to fight an issue with the immune response. And then it might've been there to, or... it might've been there to fight an issue. It might've gotten stuck there because the proteoglycans and the subintimal layer are there. But it, if you are healthy, the take home is that I strongly believe, and I advanced this thesis in my book and I've talked about it a lot, many other podcasts. I have a podcast too. It's called fundamental health. I've done seven podcasts on this. I believe that if you are metabolically healthy, everything comes back to metabolic health, Chris. We've kind of hinted at it. And you can measure your metabolic health by knowing your fasting insulin. And people might hear that term metabolic health, think pre-diabetes, but think pre-pre-pre-diabetes, right? Because that's metabolic dysfunction is when you're pre-pre-diabetic. Um, when you're pre-diabetic, your doctor can tell. When you're diabetic, you are in real trouble, but it's all on the spectrum and that is connected with everything. So this is what's really fascinating. If you look at LDL levels, and they've done this with studies like the Framingham cohort, which is an epidemiology study. If you just look and you compare LDL levels to the incidence of heart attack across the whole sample, as LDL goes up, you see more people with heart attack. And you, that's what people look at and they go, see LDL, LDL's rising, more people get heart attacks. But if you take that data and you stratify by a third variable, this is really important. You stratify by a third variable that gives you a sense of someone's metabolic health. And the one they used in this Framingham analysis was HDL. Now, it's more about a proxy for metabolic health as HDL. This is high density lipoprotein. It's good cholesterol. If your HDL is high, which is generally a good thing, quote unquote, your, the, as your LDL rises, there is essentially no correlation between higher LDL and heart attacks. If, you, if your LDL is low, which is what we generally see in people who are pre-diabetic or pre-pre-diabetic, then as your LDL goes up, there's a clear correlation with heart attacks. So riddle me this, <laughs> this is the third variable, right? This is what we've been missing. And we see this in all kinds of studies. You can also look at triglycerides because the, or the triglyceride HDL ratio or fasting insulin, like I said. And I know I'm getting a little bit technical here, but if you look at fasting insulin levels, and you compare fasting insulin, which you want to be low when you're metabolically healthy, people who have a low fasting insulin, as their LDL rises, there's generally no correlation with increased cardiovascular disease. Wait, what's a fasting insulin? It's a blood test oh, that nice. you take when you're fasting. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So insulin is a hormone that's produced by your pancreas in response to the consumption of protein or sugars. Gotcha. And it's the kind of thing that goes, a fasting insulin that's high is associated with metabolic dysfunction because you have some degree of baseline insulin resistance. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. So I'm just using fasting insulin as a metric of overall health. And the word I used for that was metabolic health. Gotcha. So, yeah. So if you have a low fasting insulin, which means you are metabolically healthy, then there's really no correlation between rising LDL and cardiovascular disease. And I think this really points to the idea that it's not about LDL. It's about triglycerides, HDL, fasting insulin. It's about your metabolic health. Hmm. Of course, you want to know what somebody's LDL is, but if you have a high quote unquote LDL and you're metabolically healthy, I see that as you have more immune particles, you have more buses moving valuable nutrients around your body, and a high LDL has actually been associated with longevity in older populations, freedom from infection, all kinds of good things. So if you look at people who live a long time, many of them have high LDL, not yeah. surprising, right? So mm -hmm. you want to be metabolically healthy, but 
a lot of times we're never told that. We just focus on LDL myopically, but we can't look at LDL in, in, um, in isolation. You have to look at LDL, triglycerides, HDL, that ratio is critical, and fasting insulin. But people listening to this, if you go to your doctor and they do a, a cholesterol check, they're going to get triglycerides, HDL, and LDL. They might even do a more sophisticated analysis, like a lipoprotein profile or something, and do NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, the particle counts, whatever. They're very unlikely to do a fasting insulin. Everyone should know their fasting insulin, and it should be less than five, less than five micro IU per ml, less than five for a fasting insulin. That's how you know that you are metabolically healthy. If your fasting insulin is above five, you've got work to do. If it's six or seven, it's not the end of the world. But I've seen people with fasting insulin of 20 or 16. That's metabolic dysfunction. And in that person, I'm worried about their LDL getting stuck. I'm worried about those proteoglycans. I'm worried about the stickiness of that LDL particle. And in that case, I'm worried about LDL accumulating in the arteries. But how do you get metabolically healthy? You change your diet. You stop eating the foods that are making you metabolically unwell. And just so nobody thinks this, I'm not saying vegetables are going to give you diabetes, but I am saying some of the other foods that you'll cut out when you do this type of diet, processed sugars and seed oils, those are the two main culprits, right? So if you wanted to go halfway, you could just take the processed foods out of your diet, don't eat processed sugar, and don't eat seed oils, which are corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, soybean, grapeseed, all those oils. You got to get those out of your diet. Got to get them out of your diet, but they're in everything. And this is where it gets to be crazy, Chris. Those are the oils that the American Heart Association will recommend because they lower LDL. But I think that they're, as they're lowering LDL, and you can see this in studies, they lower LDL, but they have worse outcomes and more people die. These are studies like Sydney Diet Heart, Minnesota Coronary Experiment. People want to look up these studies. And even um, the Diet Leon study. And you lower LDL when you eat these oils, but your oxidized LDL goes up. And there's another marker called LP little a that goes up, which is a marker of LDL oxidation. That's all very technical. I'm sorry. It's a very it only answer. No, no, it's, it's perfect. LDL is good. I'm in. So two things. One, the seed oils. I, 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 know we're, I don't know if you have a time that you need to get no, off no, or not, but um, the seed oils um, I want to get into. But before that, because I have a friend who has familial triglycerides uh in i guess in his family and he that that was a question coming from him from him is this something that he would have to worry about and it was specifically it was specifically asked to me on animal-based diet between the the phase was it phase two phase three or um are they are they set in phases how do you describe well, in my book so in the carnivore code i had tier he, he had one, read your tier, book yeah That's i had tier, yeah. tier one oh, through five of a carnivore diet. But, you know, I've got a cookbook coming out in December. I just simplified it. Basically, you've got carnivore and animal-based. Mm-hmm. And carnivore is all meat and organs. And animal-based is meat and organs and fruit and honey and squash and avocado, the least toxic plant foods. And I'm, I'm, I generally steer people more toward the latter. And so my question for your friend is this, what's your fasting insulin? And he may or may not know. I suspect this physician has not checked it. And it's also okay to do an experiment do this diet, recheck your triglycerides. I bet they will go down, but also check your fasting insulin and check your HSCRP, which is a marker of inflammation, check your fasting glucose. And I bet things will move in the right direction. So there's another type of familial hypercholesterolemia in which LDL is elevated. And that one is a little sticky, but I think that the the story remains the same. 
know what your fasting insulin is, know how metabolically healthy you are. Um, and there, the cases of familial hypercholesterolemia are fascinating because there are case reports of people who have had elevated LDL their whole life, six to 700 milligrams per deciliter, which is very high, and they never develop heart disease. So not all familial hypercholesterolemia is created the same, and not all levels of LDL that are elevated are associated with higher levels of heart disease. Familial hypercholesterolemia in some individuals is associated with clotting factor abnormalities, and that could lead to more heart attacks independent of elevated LDL. That's what often gets missed is that that familial hypercholesterolemia is a heterogeneous group of conditions. There's over 2000, I think, different genetic mutations that can lead to familial hypercholesterolemia. So what I would say is most of these people, in my opinion, can try this, just know what your fasting insulin is. And, and now, that. So you get your fasting insulin and then what, what would be the steps after that? So you get your fasting insulin. If it's less than five, you're, you're pretty metabolically healthy. And when you get blood work in the future, always get a fasting insulin work with a physician who understands the context of all of this. If your fasting insulin is above five, say it's between five and 10, you, you probably are eating some seed oils or some processed sugar. You got to cut those out, or you have 20 pounds of fat to lose. You got you to figure out how to lose that. If your fasting insulin is above 10, you're very metabolically unhealthy. I still think you could do the diet, just keep checking the fasting insulin because I think that the way to improve your fasting insulin is to cut out those foods from your diet. So you think fasting insulin, uh, that test is the best way to figure out if you're healthy or not? It's such a good test, Chris. It's such a good test. And it's $25. If people are paying out of pocket, $25. How do I, how do I do this? I just, just after they get a doctor, write a script to go to a blood, a lab or. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You just tell your doctor you want a fasting insulin. Gotcha. Right. And then there's other things you can do. You know, there's, there's other layers. Like I'm being extremely reductionist here and extremely minimalist. No. But if there's one blood test that everybody needs to add to their panel, it's a fasting insulin. Now, if you wanted to do more, you could. We talked about it, HSCRP, et cetera. There's also something called a continuous glucose monitor. Do you know what this is? No. Oh, I, I'll could, have to, I, could, I, could, I could guess on, on it though. But I'll have to connect you with these guys. There's a great company called NutriSense. And they make these continuous glucose monitors. Traditionally, these have been used for type one diabetics, but now you can get them. Basically, they have NutriSense has it set up so that you can, they will, they have physicians in every state that'll get it for you. You don't even need a prescription. Their physician will prescribe it for you. Mm. And it's a little disc that you put on your arm. It has a little stylet with a, a piece of plastic that goes into your subcutaneous fat and it samples your glucose every five minutes. And you can take this little transmitter whether it's a Freestyle Libre or a Dexcom G6. And on your phone, you can check your glucose throughout the day. And you can see what your glucose is doing throughout the day. You can see your fasting glucose. You can see your postprandial, which is after eating glucose levels. So that's also a very, very useful tool. Um, oh, for you got to connect me. But why, what, what do I do with them? Once I get those numbers, what does that tell me? Well, it tells you how your glucose responds to the foods you're eating. Okay. It tells you what your glycemic variability is. And what you want to see is this, you, you see, you eat food, right? Your glucose is going to go up and then you want to see your glucose return to baseline, which should in most people will be, be between 70 and 90 milligrams per deciliter. It's your return to baseline pretty quickly within an hour. If you see your glucose go up and then it just stays elevated and then it bumps around for a few hours, that is postprandial after eating hyperglycemia. That's not what you want. That's an indication of metabolic unhealth. Mm. 
So you can really, just by looking, if you work with a physician who knows what they're talking about here, or you work with the folks in NutriSense, they have dietitians that understand this. You can just look at that visually and look at the pattern of your glucose and you'll be able to tell, is this person metabolically healthy or not? It kind of helps you fill in. It's a little bit more data than a fasting insulin. They're both really good, but that's just another level that you could go to. What's cool about the, the continuous glucose monitor is I like that it helps people make behavioral change because they can see their glucose in real time, yeah, right? They eat, a, they eat a donut and they check their glucose and they go, oh man, <laughs> you know? And they're like, oh, that wasn't good. You know, my glucose yeah. went so high. And they check their the glucose in an hour because they ate, a, they ate donuts and pizza and, and Coke, which is sounds like a horrible junk food meal to you or me. Uh, and their glucose is gonna be elevated for a really long time. And they're like, wow, this is horrible. And they can see it. It's just like, oh, it's pattern so is the goal is the goal for it to not go up that much obviously you know every like you know how much sugar is in everything you eat now everything has like you know a label on it is there i mean there's i guess sometimes there's good sugars too right like like in fruit is there a certain level that you don't want to get to so some would say yes but i don't think so so i think that it's more important how quickly it returns to baseline rather than how high it goes right because you can imagine i'm with the hadza in africa and we see a beehive and there's th- me and like four other guys in the Hadza tribe. And we eat the whole beehive among four of us, you know, like they're not bringing this thing back to camp. We're yeah. eating, we're eating hundreds of grams of honey. Their glucose is going to go above 160 for sure, but it's going to come back to baseline within 45 minutes. And this is what's called the area under the curve, the AUC. It gets a little technical. People don't have to worry about that, but you want your glucose area under the curve to be small. And that means your insulin is working and your body is moving glucose out of the blood into the muscle. Okay. So you don't have to worry. Some people in the space get worried about like, don't have your glucose go over 140. I don't think so. I don't think you need to think like that. Think about how fast it comes back to baseline and what your baseline is. And so when I've done this, Chris, and I have a whole podcast about this with the folks from NutriSense. Generally, I wake up in the morning, my fasting glucose is 70 or 80 milligrams per deciliter, maybe 85. I eat breakfast, it might go to 120, 130, 140, maybe 150 if I eat a bunch of honey. And then within an hour, it's right back to baseline around 70 or 80. And then I don't eat snacks. If I don't eat any snacks, it'll just stay at baseline all day, flat, flat. And then I eat dinner or lunch, I get another spike right back to baseline within an hour. Small area under the curve. It's like an integral, right? So there's not a lot of area under that curve. Mm -hmm. And then it just spikes and then it comes back spikes and comes back. If you see somebody with diabetes, they have like a tombstone. They have a real big peak. It kind of goes up and moves around and it comes back. They might get hypoglycemic. It goes around. It's it's all over the place. So you really want it to be like, you know, come down quick. Yeah. Come down quick and stay at your baseline. And people can feel that because you ever hear people talk about, they like eat and they have this energy drop, or if they don't eat their energy drops, that to me is you would see that on a continuous glucose monitor because your fasting glucose would be like dropping. That's not normal. Your body should be able to generate this glucose. You know, you should be able to like have glucose between meals. It should be stable. Mm-hmm. And then after eating, you shouldn't get a big crash. Your body should just come back to baseline. You shouldn't get hypoglycemic. Both of those patterns suggest that there's some degree of sort of imbalance and mishandling of the glucose that you can change with diet. Okay. Awesome. Um, seed oils. 
Because yeah. I, I mean, I'm in my kitchen. I, I, you know, if people don't follow you on Instagram, I highly recommend following you. If you're not shadow banned, something else I wanted to get into. <laughs> I don't know how much time we're going to have, but you put up uh, the, the food pyramid and, uh, or a chart of, you did a food pyramid, but, and then I also seen the chart of, uh, of different oils and the toxicity levels. And I'm looking at my kitchen. I got the avocado oil. I got the coconut oil. And I'm like, this is no good. It's organic, so I guess it's better. But can you just go into why these are actually not good and what 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 it's doing to us? And then, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So seed oils is super important topic. And on my Instagram, I have like low, medium, and high toxicity oils. And here's the deal: I have a whole, I have multiple podcasts about seed oils too, because I think that more than any other thing that we are eating today as Westernized humans, this is the culprit for chronic illness. And the main seed oils that I want people to be worried about are corn, canola, safflower, sunflower, peanut, grapeseed, soybean, right? The two you mentioned are not that bad. They're not my favorites, but they're not that bad. And so I'll tell you why I'm not a fan of those other ones. And then I'll talk about the coconut, the olive and the avocado, which are in the middle. And then I'll talk about the ones that I prefer. So evolutionarily, if you're in the wild, to get the equivalent of a few tablespoons of corn oil, you would have to eat 98 ears of corn. Jeez. Okay. You would have to eat something like 2,700 sunflower seeds to get the equivalent of a couple of tablespoons of sunflower seed oil. Okay. Mm. And the list goes on and on. You'd have to eat, I think it's 960 grapes with their seeds to get the equivalent of one tablespoon of grape seed oil. Wow. I don't even know how many soybeans you'd have to eat, Chris, to get a tablespoon of soybean oil. Mm. So this is, we're getting oils that are super concentrated sources of this omega-6 fatty acid, linoleic acid, that is really problematic in high amounts. It leads to oxidation in the membranes. Like I said, it leads to oxidation of LDL. It triggers all sorts of problematic cascades in the human body. We can correlate increased exposure of linoleic acid, increased consumption to increased levels of inflammatory mediators like HSCRP in the blood. And if you look, at the amount of linoleic acid in our diet, it's much higher than what the Hadza eat, than what any historical humans eat in, in quote unquote nature, right? They're eating 1% of their calories is linoleic acid, maybe two. We eat eight, 10, 15% of our calories as this linoleic acid, which is found in seed oils. So the problem with seed oils is excess linoleic acid. And they've done all kinds of studies in humans and in mice showing that this is a real problem and it leads to um, increased cardiac events. So there's two major studies, actually three, three or four, Sydney Diet Heart, Minnesota Coronary Experiment, uh, Rose Corn Oil Study, and um, the last one is Diet Leon. And in Diet Leon, they decreased the amount of linoleic acid in people's diets and they did much, much better from a cardiovascular perspective by decreasing linoleic acid. In, in Minnesota coronary and Sydney diet heart, they had one group that had higher saturated fat and one group that had higher linoleic acid, which group did better. And this is interventional study, not epidemiology, not observational research, like we talked about earlier, which group did better. The saturated fat group did much better than the linoleic acid study in all those studies. Now, so that, that's, that's the high level on that stuff. So, you, and it's just evolutionarily inconsistent to, to eat this much linoleic acid. So when so seed oils are out, like just, you got to get rid of them. You can't eat any foods with those in it, which that alone will fix most people's health problems because most restaurants, everything we eat 
does it have yes. it has those oils in it, right? Is yes. Right? You you'd be appalled if you went back. I mean, most people can see into a restaurant, they've got a big plastic jug, not a good thing, of some kind of seed oil in the back. And they're either frying. You go to McDonald's, and everybody thinks it's the meat at McDonald's, it's so bad. The meat is the best thing at McDonald's. It's not, it's not grass-fed, grass-finished, like we talked about earlier, but the meat at McDonald's is pure meat. There's no additives in their meat. But what are they frying the fries in? Soybean oil, right? Mm. So this is the problem. And I'll just I'll just sidestep for a moment. This is the problem with epidemiology, is that when you look at studies and they ask people, do you eat a hot dog? Right? Do you go to McDonald's? Just like the hot dog study that takes 36 minutes off your life. Mm. Well, how many people eat hot dog by itself without a bun, with some seed oil in the bun, without French fries, and, you know, hot dog and curly fries, man, that's what you eat. <laughs> like, of course, yeah. And, and what are the curly fries fried in? Soybean oil. So this is the problem with observational studies is you can't tell if it's the hot dog or the French fries. And I think it's clearly the French fries. Now, a hot dog isn't the best food in the world. It's processed you know, parts kind of like pushed and mashed together, mm -hmm. but it's all meat, right? Maybe yeah. it's going to have some preservatives or some kind of stuff in there. It's not awesome. I mean, hot dog is clearly a processed meat, which I'm not a huge fan of, but McDonald's is a better example. Like people could actually get healthy eating McDonald's. You could just eat all the non-processed food at McDonald's. You could just get, bun you could get bunless hamburgers. You could even go to McDonald's and eat some lettuce or vegetables and just eat burger patties and you would get healthy you would get healthier but you can't eat those fries cooked in soybean oil and no epidemiology no observational study is going to be able to distinguish the fries cooked in soybean oil causing a problem from the hamburger that they're eating with or the milkshake how many people do you know that go to barbecues and that don't drink beer eat potato chips coleslaw with their hamburgers right so this is the problem with observational studies of meat is that we've been told that meat is bad for us for 70 years so people who eat meat are generally the people who go to barbecues and say, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy myself, which is their right, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. but they're also going to eat brownies and everything else. And you can't tell which it is that's causing the problem. But if you look at the interventional studies, like the ones I mentioned, it's pretty clear these seed oils are a massive problem for us physiologically because it's not something we ever would have been exposed to. And that's a theme that comes up over and over. And that's why anthropology should have been taught in medical school, because our ancestors knew how to eat. We know what a species-appropriate human diet is, and it's not French fries from McDonald's. But the burger patty at McDonald's is a heck of a lot closer to a species-appropriate diet than those French fries cooked in soybean oil. So hopefully that makes sense. And then yeah. the intermediate oils are things like olive, avocado, and coconut. Now, now, coconut is mostly saturated. So there's not much linoleic acid in coconut oil. Coconut oil is okay. But I always ask, well, why are you eating coconut oil and not animal fat? We've been told animal fat is bad for us, but in 1900, 100% of the uh, fat that we were eating was animal fat, 100%. And rates of diabetes, rates of heart disease were much, much lower in 1900. Go back 100 more years, 1800. There's no such thing as seed oils in 1800. All we were eating was lard and tallow, which is the fat from cows, right? So that's all we were eating. And there was no chronic disease. There was really no heart attack in that. But we introduced seed oils in 1911 and then things started to go up. And that's a correlation, but wow. we can go further down the rabbit hole. So why do we fear animal fat so much? We should embrace animal fat. If you can tolerate dairy, butter is amazing. I like tallow, which is like a rendered animal fat from cows. Lard from pigs is, is, is tricky because most pigs are fed corn and soy 
And that increases the amount of linoleic acid in their fat unnecessarily. So let me talk about that after I talk about olive and avocado. Okay. Olive and avocado are much better than seed oils. They have much lower amounts of linoleic acid, like 12%, but they have more than ruminant fat. Ruminant fat from cows is one or 2% linoleic acid. Olive oil and avocado have more linoleic acid than that. They have 12, which isn't a lot, but soybean oil is like 50 to 60% linoleic acid, right? Yeah. And the problem with avocado and olive is that unless you know that it's a really, really good source and it's really, really fresh and that you refrigerate it or you keep it away from light or it's in a dark bottle, it's much more likely to oxidize and become damaged with age. So that's my concern is like, why not always eat the best oil? And a lot of olive oil is cut with other vegetable oils. And they're not going to tell you that on the label. There's a lot of corruption in the olive oil business, right? They're not going to tell you it's cut with vegetable oil. Yeah. So I believe there are good olive oils. Like if you could go to Greece or Italy and they were going to make olive oil for you fresh, that would probably be pretty good for a human. I still think animal fat is better, but that's okay. But the olive oil that you get in the, show, in the store or the, the avocado oil that's in your cabinet, how long has it been there? You don't know, you know, like- Ever expires. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gonna have an expiration date, but I would venture to say that olive oil, that, that olive oil was pressed six months ago or the avocado oil is six months to a year old by the time you get it or by the time you finish it. That's not something we would have ever had. That's a very old oil. Come on, you know? Yeah, yeah. So- I hear you. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty important to remember. And I always go back to why would you not eat the best oil? And the best oil is tallow, in my opinion, or butter or ghee, if you can tolerate dairy. Now, some people have a little bit of an immunologic reaction to dairy, but that's why we make, so at Hardened Soil, we make a pill called Firestarter and we put tallow in the pill. And there's a specific type of fat in the tallow called stearic acid. Nobody talks about stearic acid, but it's really an incredible molecule. It's a saturated fat. But it's been shown in mouse models to lead to decreased body fat. And then when we give it to humans, we see mitochondria, which are the powerhouse in the cell. We see that turn on. There's a really cool study in nature where they, they starved people of stearic acid. They put them on a vegetarian diet and they see their mitochondria kind of turn off. They don't burn fat. And then they give them stearic acid back and the mitochondria turn on and start burning fat. So it's more complicated than that, but it's a really valuable fat. So that's the reason I'm a fan of animal fats. Because it's not just about calories or fat. There's other nutrients. There's specific fatty acids in these fats that you can't get other places. There's no stearic acid in coconut oil, for instance. Yeah. There's stearic acid in cocoa butter. If you want to eat cocoa butter, you can get some stearic acid. But there's no stearic acid in olive oil. There's no stearic acid of any appreciable amount in avocado oil. But there's stearic acid in tallow. And so you can either buy tallow or you can take this fire starter supplement from hardened soil. But the stories we hear of people losing weight with this are crazy. They're literally eating fat and losing weight because there's these unique molecules in animal fat. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's also fat soluble vitamins in animal fat, like vitamin K2, vitamin E. Um, people always wonder, like, where do you get your vitamin E on a carnivore diet? And when I check my vitamin E, it's very high. It's from the animal fat. There's vitamin E in animal fats. And then you can go down the list, you know, vitamin K2, like I said, odd chain fatty acids without getting too technical. But I think olive and avocado are better choices if you don't have any other choice. But I think tallow and butter and ghee are the best. And then the last one is lard. And this is a real problem because I know a lot of people like bacon and people might think bacon is a good choice on a carnivore diet. And if that pig is a wild pig, then yes. But the problem with 
chickens and pigs is that we don't feed them a species appropriate diet. There's that word again, species appropriate diet. We don't feed chickens and pigs species appropriate diet. We feed them corn and we feed them soy. And that increases the amount of linoleic acid in their fat, just like it does with us as humans. So when we feed pigs corn and soy, they get fatter with more linoleic acid and they can pass that on to us. So what I'm saying is you wouldn't want to make the majority of your fat from pigs because then you're just going to be getting, it can be 20 plus percent of their fat is linoleic acid in the pig. Still better than 50 to 60% in a seed oil, but way more than you'd want one to 2% in ruminant animal fat. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I want to wrap this up um, just because my my producer, Troy, I just always blame him. He starts yelling, yelling at me on the chat. But um, if you could sum up just quickly a example of a day on the carnivore diet for people, because I just think, I think obviously having you on is so valuable for so many reasons. People need to hear this. Um, I think that everyone should be open-minded and, and when they hear this and if they got something going on, if they have an autoimmune disease or they're not feeling great, they're overweight, uh, you should give this a shot because it made me feel so good. Um, and I have a bunch of friends who are trying it and they all love it. They're reading your book, Carnivore Code. And um, so I think it's great. And I think everybody should try it and see how they feel. But just to give an example, because as much as we got into everything technically, I don't know if we really went over what what we actually eat when we're doing this. So if you could just, just jump into that real quick and then uh, we will finish with that. Yeah. So there's a lot of resources for this at Heart and Soil. So we mentioned this earlier, but I'll just I'll plug it here. We talked about the desiccated organ supplements. I'll mention those again. But at the company I built, heartandsoil.co, you can send us a message. We'll send you a free infographic with like which foods to choose on an on a animal-based diet with like different, you know, low, medium, high toxic oils, toxic plants. We have a 30-page ebook we'll send you for free. In the month of August, I imagine this podcast, I don't know if it'll come out in August, but we do every quarter. So we'll do the next one in November. We do an animal-based 30. It's a 30-day animal-based eating challenge. It's free. You sign up. There's like chat groups. There's a Facebook group. We give all these free materials away. Or you can just email us radicalhealth at heartandsoil.co with questions. We'll send you any of these materials for free to help people get started with the diet. So I want to make this all available. And if you need more organs in your life and you don't want to eat the fresh organs, we make all sorts of cool desiccated organs. We put them, we freeze dry them, we put them in a capsule, make it really easy to take the organs like you were taking. Mm -hmm. So the way that the way that I construct my diet is a little different than what other people are going to do. So I want to make sure that people understand you can do more variety than I do. I'm kind of a minimalist. I like simple. So I'll talk about what I do and then I'll talk about what you could do as well. Perfect. So right now I'm in Costa Rica. I usually get up in the morning and I surf for a couple hours. Before I go surf, I have a couple of coconuts and I might have a quarter of a papaya. And then when I come back from surfing at nine in the morning, I eat breakfast. This is just how my day looks. And for breakfast, I will eat at least a pound of grass-fed meat, at least a pound. That's a ribeye, that's hamburgers, that's heart, that's some kind of meat, at least a pound. Sometimes it's a pound and a quarter or a pound and a half of meat for breakfast. Mm. I put a little bit of Maldon salt on it and I'll eat a little bit of liver. I'll eat maybe like half an ounce of liver. And I've really- usually, It's usually the grass fed, grass finished, uh, red fatty meat, right? Like, like a yes. ribeye usually. Yes, ribeye or, or fatty hamburger or something. Yeah, I've got a grill that I really like here and I grill it. And I'll eat a little bit of organs. So sometimes I eat heart or I eat liver. Um, 
I actually just went to a butcher here in Costa Rica and got testicle. People are going to love that. Mm -hmm. I I know you love that. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do like that. But I'll tell you what, Chris, we got to get you. So uh, when I don't have testicle, I'll do desiccated testicle. (laughs) We have a supplement called whole package, which has desiccated testicle in it. And I don't think it's placebo, but I've never taken anything that like changes my libido like this. Like it feels really, Really? yeah, it feels really good. Uh, It's interesting. Um, And it's just, so I'll eat a little bit of testicle or a little bit of desiccated testicle. So either the the capsules, which we make at Hard and Soil, which is whole package, or I got fresh bull testicles. I want the fresh one. Desiccated (laughs) testicles just, just sounds too weird for me. Well, it's in a pill. You know? I just want the testicle. <laughs> you just want the real testicle. Right up right. testicle. However you want to get it, get testicle. <laughs> and, then, and then I'll have some more fruit. You know, I may have a little more papaya, a couple, a couple of coconuts, and a little bit of honey. And maybe a, a little bit of honey might be, might be 70 grams of honey, you know, maybe five or six tablespoons of honey. So, but that's how I do breakfast. Now, other people might do breakfast with more variety. You might want to have some berries. There's not a lot of berries in Costa Rica, but you could do berries. You could do eggs. Um, you could do uh, avocado. All of those are foods that, that I include on the low toxicity plan for an animal-based diet. You could do even squash. But at, at every meal, I do eat meat. And I'll say this because it's an important metric for people. You want to make sure to get at least one gram of protein per pound of goal body weight. And I told you this when we talked and we were kind of yep. designing the diet for you. But yep. you know, for me, I'm about 165, 170 pounds. I'll usually eat at least two pounds of meat a day, which is 200 grams of protein. I think a lot of people are not getting enough protein. And then I'll eat, I, I usually eat two meals a day, sometimes three. So after this call, I'm going to jump off and eat lunch and it'll be the same thing. It'll be, you know, um, uh, probably some honey, um, maybe a little bit of desiccated testicle uh, and then meat. And it's going to be probably a pound plus of grass-fed meat. And again, I'm simple. People could add in avocado, you could add in berries, you could add in squash, you could add in more honey, you could add in whatever fruit you want, mango, orange, apple, pear, whatever. Um, I just don't have those things here in Costa Rica. And so I keep it simple for me. So hopefully that gives people a sense of like yeah. what they're doing. Again, it's it's easier. But I'll just say this um, uh, before, before I pause, that people hear this and they think I could never do that. That sounds boring, but you'd be surprised. I don't know what your experience of this was. Oh, I'm, I, was I was actually going to make sure I hit this uh, before we closed out, but you keep going. Yeah. 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 You, you don't really get bored of these foods. I think people imagine they're going to get bored because look, if you eat broccoli at every meal, you get bored as shit because yeah. broccoli has alkaloids. It has these plant defense chemicals. I think you're programmed to get bored of plant foods. So you think you're going to get bored of this, but you don't really get bored of meat. Like I've eaten meat at every single meal and it's 99.5% of it has been red meat for the last three and a half years, every single meal. And I never go to a meal and think, oh, another ribeye. I have to eat another ribeye. I'm so sick of this ribeye. That never happens to me. Never. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I, I just, I hear this from people over and over and over that it, it doesn't happen. You don't get bored of animal foods. And I think that I'd be curious for your experience, but I just want yeah. to encourage people like have an open mind uh, and don't use food as entertainment. Know what your goals are. You know, like a lot of people, I think um, you can make a lot of delicious meals with this palette of foods. And I got, a, like I said, I got a cookbook coming out in December. You can go on Amazon. It's called the carnivore code cookbook. Um, but uh, you'll be surprised at, at how much you look forward to this all the time. Yeah. I mean, I was super surprised. I, 
I'm, I was never, I would never label myself a big meat guy. Um, and so when thinking about doing this diet, I'm like, man, I'm going to have to force feed myself steak every meal. This is going to be, this is going to be crazy and tough. Um, every single meal I look forward to at the end of like, and I would eat a lot, I would eat some big ribeyes, like 20, uh, ounce ribeyes and maybe sometimes bigger. And at the end of it, I'd be super full. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to eat one a little later. And then by the time I got, I got hungry later, I could not wait to grill up another ribeye and do it again. Like, it's so funny. And then I was just taking down the fruit, you know, and it, I did not expect that. I, I was always in my mind, like, if I have to pick a cheat meal, it was never going to be a steak. It was going to be like the pasta. And I would consider myself more of like a pasta guy, which we obviously know is not good for you. So, uh, it, but I will say like on this diet, it's amazing how I enjoyed every single bit of it uh, and never got tired of it. I'm not BSing, just legit. People would be around me, like my wife and family that were over, over. I've had a bunch of people over here, uh, you know, because I've been injured, you know, everyone just comes to me. I don't, I can't really get around and I'm just sitting here eating meat every single meal. And they're like, how are you doing that? I'm like, I cannot wait. I don't even want to eat what you're eating. You know, it's crazy. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, living proof. It, it, you don't get sick of it and you are excited about every meal. And you feel it's really not good. that hard of a diet. Yeah. People are like, I yeah. can't believe you're doing that extreme diet. I'm like, yo, to be honest, I don't think it's extreme. <laughs> I eat fruit and an awesome steak every single meal. And you would think you get tired of it, but you really, I, I, I did not get tired of it at all. The other thing I'll just say here is you don't have to eat steak at every meal. If you want to eat chicken, you can. Uh, I would go for the leaner parts of chicken. If you want to eat pork, you can. Again, don't make a lot of your diet pork fat. You can definitely eat fish on this diet. Be careful of the mercury. You can eat all kinds of animals. You know, you could eat bison, you could eat grouse or pheasant or deer or wild meat or whatever you wanted to eat. You know, if you really wanted variety, you could eat trout or salmon or low, low metal fish is fine. Um, chicken is fine. I just, I have gravitated to like, why would I eat anything else? Like the best thing I can eat is a ribeye. Not everybody feels that way. So there's there's more variety in there if you want. You can eat eggs, you know, you can do this. It's all, I saw your breakfast this morning was eggs, yeah. you know? Yep. There's a lot more foods than Chris and I are just talking about right now. It's not just like steak diet. It could be if you want. Yeah. If that, if that flips your lid, do it. But uh, it can be a little bit more variety than that. Yeah, all I needed to hear from you was that the ribeyes are the best, has the, has the fat, red fatty meat, and uh, you get a lot more nutrition from that. So I was like, all right, I'll do that every meal. And then I was doing eggs. I was doing eggs in the morning. Um, just because I like eggs, but like you explained, eggs are great, but they don't have as much protein as the meat. You know, it's like what four grams of protein per six, egg. Six, okay. six, six grams. So it per takes egg. a takes a long time. I'm over 200 pounds, so it takes a long time to get over 200 grams of protein if you're just eating eggs. It take a lot of eggs, yeah. man. Yeah, you might as well eat a steak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, bro, I really appreciate you doing this, man. Um, you know, I really wanted to get this message out and other people to uh, hear your story and for people to be able to try this out because it really has been uh, life-changing for me. And I want as many people out there, especially if you're having issues, man, if this could help you at all, I really, I really uh, hope you try it. Man, Chris, it's an honor. It's, it's been an honor working with you. I can't wait to see you back fighting you, soon, man. man. I'm stoked for your recovery. And yeah, I'm excited. It's been great to talk and I hope this helps a lot of people. I appreciate it, brother. Hell yeah, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Talk Take to you care, soon. Man. Enjoy. Thanks again for Dr. Paul Saladino for joining me on my podcast. It was a great conversation. Uh, I learned a lot. It got very technical, um, which 
<laughs> I'm going to have to go back and re-listen and, and really study it. And I'm excited to hear from other nutritionists and people who've been in the field for a long time because it's very non-traditional. It seems probably wacky to a lot of people that vegetables are actually toxic and you're not supposed to eat them. I know it sounded that way to me. Um, but I really challenge you guys, especially if you got something going on, you don't feel great and you can't figure out why, give this 30 days. Do the carnivore diet for 30 days. Go and get his book, The Carnivore Code. Read the book and start the diet. It's it's not that complicated. You know, red fatty meat and eggs, fruit, uh, animal-based stuff. And it felt amazing for me. I'm not saying it's for everybody. I don't know. But I'll, I'm saying for me, it's been great. I've tried a lot of different things. I've gone vegan. Um, I've done paleo. I've done keto. This for me worked the best of any other diet I've ever done. Um, so I just challenge you guys to give it a shot. You know, I felt amazing doing it for 30 days and I'm going to continue to try to be on this diet um, for the long haul. George St. Pierre felt amazing doing this diet. Um, but more than that, you got Dr. Paul Saldino. I don't know. I think he's 40, 43 or 44. And look at him. He looks amazing. And he's been doing it for a very long time. He puts out his own blood work. He puts out the numbers. You could see where his inflammatory numbers are on his blood work. You could see uh, where his cholesterol is. Um, so all those answers are right there for you. Um, he puts everything out there. And it's, I just think it's something that people should look into. Um, again, it's against everything that we probably ever learned. But give it a shot, guys. Again, if you want to go check out the video of that conversation, it's over on my YouTube channel. If you want more from Dr. Saladino, we'll put a bunch of his information in the show notes of today's episode. Before I go, I just want to read this podcast review from the fan of the show, Jasper94, who says, Amazing. Chris is a natural. Well, thank you. Chris is a natural. Well-produced. Troy, congratulations. You got a nice positive comment there. Love it. Thanks, Jasper. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to hear your review on next week's show, just head on over to Apple Podcasts, find Won't Back Down, and let us know what you think about the show. Are the episodes too long, too short? What do you like and dislike? Who do you want to hear from? Let us know, and we'll make it happen. Thanks, everyone. I really appreciate you all tuning in, and I hope you all have a great rest of the week, and that you come back soon to hear another great conversation. But until then, I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down. Thanks for listening.